Your attention is precious. Pulled in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of Blue. Learn more at BenefitOfBlueSC.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's an honor and a pleasure to bring to you my next guest to the podcast. He is a former Navy SEAL, a former Navy SEAL canine handler. He spent 10 years on active duty, three combat deployments, two to Afghanistan, one to Iraq. One of those Afghanistan deployments was with a dog. He's now a professional NASCAR driver. And he started the Greenlight Society, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that specializes in adrenaline therapy for combat wounded veterans. His beard has its own Instagram page, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. sleeps in a fucking t shirt with his face on it. Please welcome to the stage, Taylor Canfield. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great intro, man. I appreciate it. Well, hell yeah. Dale called me the other day and asked me if while you were here, uh, you could hook him up with another shirt oh, with man. your face on it. So well, he was embarrassed to ask you, but I figured, uh, you know, I know a guy, so I, I'd ask you. If I'm you glad you got him one. He uh, he owes me a phone call back, and I haven't heard from him in a while. So. Yeah, well, he's, uh, <laughs> you'll be hearing from him soon, I'm sure. All right. All right, uh, I know we're on a little bit of a limited time, uh, so I'll jump right into it. What's your favorite Hot Pocket flavor? Hot Pocket? Holy cow, man. I don't know if I've had a Hot Pocket in probably five years. I'd probably, I mean, if I had to pick off the top of my head, I think there's one with like little meatballs in it, so probably that. The, the, the meatball Hot Pocket? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. deep down inside, I'm, I'm always going to be a fat kid, so... <laughs> Gotta go with the meatballs. Yeah, that's not a bad fucking choice. Uh, <laughs> what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? Ooh. Is that a long list? That's that's a definitely a long list. Man, I've made some pretty dumb investments before. Um, probably buying um, vehicles is <laughs> been my, my biggest Your Achilles heel. dumb choice, man. Yeah. I mean Is there a vehicle that that was the dumbest one I've ever bought? Um, yeah, I bought a, uh, and if you say Prius, we're going to end there. No, no, I bought a, I bought a Jeep Cherokee. It was the WJ body style. And, uh, I, I don't think I did my, my research on them properly. I way overpaid for the thing. And, uh, I mean, it was, 
it was you know it looked hooked up online yeah. and i bought it sight unseen another dumb idea um <laughs> the thing was a complete rust bucket and it fell the hell apart oh, man sure. i spent so much money just trying to get it back to a sellable condition because wow. it was such a headache so that you could fuck somebody so that I could, yeah. <laughs> oh man it was yeah. bad dude it was God, bad man. like i i had to completely just toast one wheel because the uh the lugs were rusted on there so bad that I, man, I had a torch on that thing. It was glowing hot, couldn't get it off. So I went in there with a, a angle grinder and a metal saw on there and just tried to hack away little by little, get that stud down to where I could just yank the wheel off and uh, just toasted that wheel. So I ended up buying a new wheel for it. Oh, it was bad. So Did, did you end up? Just shit can it, or did you end up? Yeah, no, I, I sold it for a giant, giant loss. Yeah. Like, and I owned it for maybe three or four months. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yeah, I mean, shit happens, right? Yeah, yeah, but no, vehicles are definitely my uh, my kryptonite. Yeah. You know, my dad passed off the gearhead thing to me. So, yeah. well, so speaking of parents, uh, next question: What? When is the last time that your mom jumped your ass about something, and what was it for? Well, let's see. You know, me and my mom, we went through a rough patch when I was like 15, 16 time frame, right when I was like thinking about joining. Mm. I had no plan though, you know? So like when I came into it, you know, I watched my sister go to college and rack up a giant bill of debt and I'm like, nope. And I was like, ah, yeah, you know, I know military will pay for college. And so I didn't really have military aspirations. I had college aspirations but I knew the military would pay for it. So I said, you know what? I'll go into the military. And my mom's <laughs> like, all right, where are you going? I'm like, I don't know. I'm yeah. just going in the military. Yeah. No plan beyond that. <laughs> and she, you know, she hated my guts because, you know, at the time, 06, 07, that was, you know, everything was still hot and heavy. And, yeah. and we were definitely still, you know, taking some casualties, you know, God bless them. But uh, so I had no plan. And she, you know, we, we didn't get along for a little while until, you know, finally came down to it. One of my buddies in high school was like, yeah, man, you ever thought about being a SEAL? And I'm like, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you should check it out, you know, and old dial-up internet back then. So I go home and do whatever research I could. And, I mean, it literally took me a couple hours. I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to try it, man. <laughs> What's to lose, right? Nothing, so I came back. like a, an impulse decision. Yeah, well, so I, apparently I'm good at impulse, yeah. but uh, normally <laughs> it's vehicles. Um, so I, yeah, I came back the next day and I was like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And that was it. And I was in ROTC at the time. And of course, you know, the instructors thought I was nuts. And, you know, I kind of got a lot of, uh, humor laughs out of it like people were like didn't you know didn't really take me seriously yeah. which i didn't really know if i mean i knew i was serious about doing it i had no idea what i was getting into though yeah. not a clue what i was getting into <laughs> a couple hours of research yeah didn't, didn't i was it? like ah oh, this will be gravy we're good to go yeah. um would you say that, that was the last time she actually jumped your ass or has she done it since um i think the last time she was pretty mad at me. It was a few years ago. I was home for Christmas, and I had revealed to her when I was in high school. So I didn't drink until I was like 20 and three-quarter years old. So in high school, I didn't drink. But again, the vehicles got to me, and uh, I was at a party, and we went home later that night, probably midnight, 
and there was like a fresh three or four inches of snow on the ground and it was me and my buddy in the car and I was like ah fuck let's go screw around a little bit so you know dumb kid turn off the traction control and you're <laughs> screwing around down a hill fishtailing all this other stuff and it got away from me and we were going sideways down this hill and we hit a ditch at the bottom of the hill and rolled the car twice I think it was my mom's brand new SUV <laughs> and um yeah it this was, was uh, when you were home on vacation yeah when yeah. I was no this is when I was in high school oh, so this is before you. I oh, went this, in this you but you told her when you were home on but vacation. well so she knew about the accident but what she didn't know is there was someone else in the vehicle with me. I told her I was alone yeah and because when I called my insurance agent at 2 a.m., this is a small town Colorado, so eventually I got his cell phone number, and I'm like, hey. I was like, uh, here's what happened. And he's like, is anybody else there? And I'm like, no, we're good. He's like, are you injured? I'm like, no, I'm good. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well, we'll deal with it in the morning then. I'm like, all right, cool. So we get a chain, and we tow it home, you know, and when my mom had asked about it, I woke up to a severe ass beating, but you know, cause I left it halfway out in the road. I was tired. I left it halfway out in the road, chained to my truck. My truck's parked in the driveway <laughs> and I went to, and I went to bed and woke up oh, to my mom, you know, letting into me. And so I had told her I was the only one in the vehicle. And then when I was home, you know, a few years back, you know, we were drinking, having a good time, loosen up. I'm like, hey, Chris, remember that one time we we rolled my mom's car? And my mom's like, we? What? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, mom, by the way, uh, Chris was in there with me. And she was, it was, I mean, she was mad for maybe five minutes, but yeah. then we all laughed it off. So it's funny how uh, I've done the same shit, like told my parents some of the shit that I did. You know, some of it they knew, and some <laughs> way of it, after the yeah, fact. Some of it they're like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> it, it's pretty funny. Mom, Dad, it's yeah. best that you didn't know at the time. Yeah. Keep no, your blood no, pressure down. It's, it's pretty funny, kind of reminiscing about the shit you, you know, you did growing up with your parents later on and how they viewed it or how you did. I mean, yeah. it, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. That's pretty funny. Uh, what's your favorite vacation spot? You know, it sucks because I've, uh, you know, I can't say it sucks because it was, it was totally by choice, but I've consumed myself so much with, you know, kind of where I want to be that um, I've really ignored vacations. Yeah. The, the only legit vacation I've taken probably since high school was we went to uh, Puerto Vallarta, oh, I think it was two years ago. Yeah. And that was a really cool spot. But, yeah, I've not, like, uh, you know, again, I get it. It's all in retrospect, you know, what's valuable to you as a, a human being. And, um, you know, if if travel's it, then, yeah, go ahead, spend your money on it. It's cool. Like, you know, you, everyone's got to invest in themselves. But, you know, for me, it was... You know, look at the the cost of a big vacation like that, and I'm like, I could buy half a car I'm for like that. five grand. Yeah. Oh man, that's a lot of fucking money towards this random weekend car that I want to go yeah. buy. And like, yeah. you know, you can. I like old stuff. You know, old Porsches. Um, you know, you can pick them up for seven, eight grand, and go race the piss out of them on a weekend, and yeah. throw them back in the garage, and they're good to go. Cheap to cheap to fix. So yeah. All right on. Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I am not really much of a vacationer either. 
for a lot of those similar reasons. But uh, I always like to know, you know, where where people like to go, and I think it says a lot, you know, whether it's the beach or mountains or yeah. You know, but uh, you know, it was it was funny because, and I think just about every other team guy can say the same thing. After buds, I literally lived in a killer apartment in Imperial Beach that was one block back from the beach. Yeah. And it was a tri-story, so we had a giant, nice rooftop that overlooked the ocean and all this other stuff. And I was there for four years. I think I went to the beach once, maybe. Yeah. I could give a crap about the beach after Buds, you know? No, like, it's cool to go and hang out for a little bit. But, you know, growing up in Colorado, we were always, you know, trying to go camping up in the mountains or whatever. And California's mountains are... a uh, a far reach from what Colorado's got to offer unless you go way north. But yeah, you know, I always found myself trying to go back inland, motorcycle trips, you know, day trips, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. that makes uh, makes a lot of sense, especially given what you're doing now. But I was going to ask what your favorite 80s action show was growing up, but you didn't really grow up in the 80s. Yeah, so. I was an 89 baby, so I get to <laughs> I get to claim the 80s, but yeah. uh, not ton, not a ton of experience there. So, what was your favorite TV show growing up? Like, is there one show that you watched where it was like, I want to be that fucking MacGyver or Knight Rider or whatever? Like, you know, my one of the neat things about growing up in the 80s, there was a, a ton of those kind of shows. But what uh, what did you watch growing up? Man, we, uh, you know, it was funny. So we we had Teletubbies. like. <laughs> you're Man, a teletubbies those, baby those no, power rangers fucking teletubbies owe me money so uh <laughs> yeah like power rangers uh god it, it makes Gaze me feel is, old yeah gaze it sounds barney um <laughs> well well it looks like we're about out of time <laughs> lamb ch- yeah it was uh it was some you know some straight early 90s tv yeah. shows that we look back now and we're like good lord yeah. how did we yeah. How did we watch that? But yeah. oh, no, the TV is taking a huge, <laughs> huge uh, downhill turn. I mean, it's Airwolf and Blue Thunder and fucking Knight Rider and Miami Vice, fucking A Team, MacGyver, like all these badass '80s shows that you know inspired at least young boys to go kick people in the face and fucking yeah. be men. Like now, there's none of that. Everybody wants to talk about their feelings, and it's like a bunch of assholes <laughs> in high school comforting each other. It's, it's fucking lame. Mike, it sounds like you need some feelings to... Uh, Maybe. You want to help me with that? Yeah. You want to help mean, me with my feelings? I'm going to go outside and, and have a drink first, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you start laying out your feelings yeah. now. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. It may, it may take you longer than that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I ask everybody the, the same uh, in terms of morning routine. What uh, What's your morning routine look like? Oh, it's kind of just centric around the dog, man. You know, it's, uh, I don't let him sleep in the bed with me. There's, you know, a lot of people let their dog sleep in the bed and I'm just, he's got like his shedding seasons and when it's bad, it is bad. Yeah. And then there's other times there hardly anything, but regardless, I don't like dog hair in my bed, so I don't let him sleep in the bed. And if I put his bed right next to where I'm sleeping, I'll generally get the uh, the nose a few times in the <laughs> night. Like, hey, hey, what's up? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? And I'm like, go lay back down. So I'll, you know, he'll sleep, you know, ten foot away from the bed, or maybe in a different room or something. And he does real good at night, just chilling. Um, so in the morning, it's you know, me and him, we'll we'll jack around for a little bit and you know, shower or whatever. I'm not, uh, I know I should be, but I'm not, I love like, so breakfast, favorite 
food yeah. category, I suppose, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like fuck pancakes, eggs, whatever. Man, I love I love making it, eating it, whatever. So yeah, I don't normally eat breakfast like I'll down a shake or something like Mitch's thing. I've been on Mitch's greens for a while and Those I taste so good too, oh, don't they? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, hey, listen, Mitch, the cool you know. thing is God gave uh, humans an ability to plug your nose without plugging your nose. So you just, you know, yeah. you plug it and you slam it. But yeah. uh, I haven't found a single greens that taste good. So yeah, they all suck. I can't fault him for it. But uh, so I'll slam a shake in the morning and then, uh, yeah, you know, make sure he's good to go and take off for the day. So. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, it's nothing set in stone because, especially when it comes to, you know, race weekends, your mornings are so different. So yeah. I can't. Yeah. I don't like to get in too much of a routine and then totally fuck myself when I go to do yeah. something different. So yeah, no, I'm tracking. Um, before we get into kind of the background and, and talk about some of your military career, one thing uh, for listener today is Memorial Day. Obviously, it's not going to be released then, but. Uh, it's it's cool to be able to sit down uh, with you on a day like today, given our our backgrounds and uh, you know the amount of uh, fellow brothers in arms that we've lost along the way. And uh, I, I appreciate you coming. It's kind of a neat neat day to sit down. Man, I tell you what, and what a total honor. You know, I'm I'm glad it it worked out. You know, for Memorial Day because it is such you know a holiday that really I try and you know make some sort of impact on Memorial Day just to just to do what I can to give back for you know guys that can't anymore so yeah um yeah I appreciate you having me today because it's uh it's it's cool just yeah. like you said yeah it's uh, it's an honor to be able to sit down with you so I appreciate it so I, I just from your referencing I know that you obviously grew up in Colorado what kind of walk us through the your childhood experience like where exactly uh you grew up and, and what that was like siblings etc yeah so um man the majority no it was it was my entire childhood uh was spent in two different houses and those were you know maybe 10 miles apart in a, a small town called pueblo west colorado pueblo colorado we affectionately refer to as the ghetto but uh <laughs> that's that good huh <laughs> is that nice yeah, I think I think when we we're, I think when I was going through high school, like one of our years, we had like the highest teen pregnancy rate in the state. Like, how big of a contributor were you to that? You know, I was <laughs> I was the Plan B guy. I was I was the dude all the chicks came to when yeah. when the jock broke up with them yeah. and they cried You're their the heart out to me, guy. and I'm like, oh yeah, everything's gonna be good. <laughs> and then you got them pregnant. No. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, so Pueblo is now, is now called uh, Canfield, Colorado because half the population is, is from your seed. Is that what you Yeah. Think? I mean, uh, well, we've got some star stud athletes in <laughs> high school right now. Yeah. So, Hey, it explains a lot. Fucking hey. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what's kind of the, the vibe of, of that city other than obviously if it's nicknamed the ghetto, but what, uh, is there an industry there? Or is there, yeah, I mean, so Pueblo West, we call it the blow because it's, so I mean, when the wind blows, it is gnarly. You know, it's uh, it's a very blue town, blue collar town, and you know, ton of hardworking people. You know, it's good good families from yeah. there for sure. From the you know from the Pueblo West side, just because it's you know when when we first you know my mom and my dad established in Pueblo West, man, there couldn't have been more than a couple thousand people. It's huge now, but yeah. you know when we got there, it was it was a very small town, so. 
Yeah, blue collar, a lot of truckers. What, what did your parents do? So both of my parents at the time when they established there were both truckers. Oh, no, your mom yeah. too. Is yeah, my mom team? was a badass trucker, man. Oh, shit. Like, uh, <laughs> That's fucking great. Yeah, little, little mom. I mean, she'll tell us stories of, you know, being in a truck i mean we're talking a you know a semi a tandem so you've got the truck with the dump box on it and then it's pulling another dump box full yeah. of dirt with no power steering trying <laughs> you know, think just fathom something that giant with no power steering she's tell us she'd have to stand up to the side and literally yank on the steering wheel to get the fucker Holy to turn fuck. so yeah she's always been a badass man now and you know after after she shortly you know after i think it was Shortly after I was born, she got out of the trucker business and became a maximum security prison guard. God damn. So, again, <laughs> badass, you know? Like, uh, can't say anything less about her. So That's pretty fucking cool. Um, yeah, they were both truckers when we, when we established there. And my dad, you know, I think he was born a trucker, basically, and died one, too. So Yeah. What... Uh what kind of experience was that for you as a kid? I guess I mean, was your dad. If your dad was a trucker, he's probably gone a lot. Well, so yeah, my parents divorced. Um, I think it was really shortly after I was born. Mm. So it was a lot of you know every other weekend go up and see dad kind of thing. But definitely the you know the trucks were a big influence on me because now like I've got a giant forty foot RV diesel pusher that i love driving right yeah. like i don't know why it's relaxing to me it's weird because it's <laughs> a pain in the ass to drive through anything you know urban yeah and so it's relaxing to me but uh yeah i think uh you know both my mom and my dad's mentality had a big influence on me because they were both extremely hardworking. My, my dad worked his ass to the bone you know and broke several bones in the process just you know hey it's fucking 5 a.m i gotta go out and start up you know this d9 dozer sitting on a low boy and it's full of ice and he ended up slipping off the top and busting his hip like in the dark you know so it's it's uh you know i look back at it now and i i sure didn't appreciate it then mm -hmm. which is what i try and uh you know tell a lot of young kids today you know Try and appreciate what your parents are doing for you, and it's tough until you get there and you experience yeah. it. But I look back, man, and I just mind blown of you know how my parents, you know what they did to just make a decent life for me. Yeah. So yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I mean, there's times you know where I I I'll ask them like, how the fuck did you do? You know, whatever like things that you remember. You're like, you know, I didn't even think twice about it at the time. Looking back, especially as a as a father now. As my kids get older and, and going through some of the things I've gone through with them, I I marvel at what my parents fucking yeah. put up with. You know, yeah. I'm just like, God, you guys are better than I am. That's for goddamn sure. But uh, so you, you mentioned you had a sister. Did you have any other siblings? Yeah, I've got uh, I've got an older sister by two years, younger sister by two years, younger brother by another two years, and another younger sister by you know two 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 kind of yeah. thing. So the two youngest. Um, Caitlin and Kyle. Uh, Caitlin, different mom. Kyle, different dad. But might as well all be from the same batch. So, yeah. and relationship wise, all good. With oh all yeah, them. fantastic. Yeah. Love yeah. them all. What do, What do they do? Um, my older sister is with USAA. No oh, shit. Yeah, my younger sister. I think she's still with Fastnail, but uh, so. 
the sister right underneath me, she's got two of my nephews, 10 and two now, I think. But um, yeah, they're up in uh, Washington being a big, happy family, which is cool. I go up there and try and visit them as often as I can doing the motorcycle ride stuff. I'm a big adventure bike guy. but yeah. So I'll go up there, and then uh, the, my younger brother, my only brother, has a... Alex, he's probably, I think he's five now. God, is it bad that I don't know this stuff? Old I'm Uncle so Taylor. Fuck. Hey, happy birthday. That Dude, was last fucking month, Dick. I'm so bad with this stuff. <laughs> I, like, I, I, you know, I'll get reminded of it, and I'm like, fuck, I need to send a card. I need to do yeah. something. You put that shit in your calendar. Oh, fuck. And then I get busy, and I forget about it, and I got to yeah. apologize. Well, when they listen to this 10 yeah. years down the road, right. I, I hope they know. If I had good intentions, yeah. I'll make it up to you. I'm the cool uncle. We'll yeah. go for NASCAR rides. Do, uh, do any of the siblings do, do anything like way outside the ordinary professionally? My younger brother's getting heavy into uh, space stuff. So he's, he's trying to major right now in physics. Yeah, I think it is physics that he's going to major in. He definitely... I mean, me and him couldn't be more opposite. He's yeah. extremely book smart, reserved, and doesn't have a driver's license. No, he's <laughs> yeah. I mean, he uh, he <laughs> he had his own little driving escapade when he was younger. But yeah, you know, and me, I, I I'm I'm not stupid, but I hated I hated homework, man. Like yeah. God, there couldn't been. I'd rather do Hell Week than the yeah. homework. Yeah, fuck. Did, uh, did you play any sports growing up? Yeah, so my entire family, we swam our entire lives. So we were all oh, swimmers. And then um, I did football, middle and high school. I was never any good at it. I like to think I was, and then I'd just get clobbered by everyone else. So um, I did baseball for a little while. But swimming and, uh, you know, unprofessional dirt biking was kind of my thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that, is that uh, you know, from the time you were a kid growing up all through high school, you know, were, were there any big ticket events or, or things that kind of really uh, shaped or molded, uh, you know, who you are and, and what you want to do today, whether it's, you know, it sounds like serving in the military was pretty nonchalant, but j- just generally speaking, I guess, you know, was there something or anything that, that happened in high school or, or just in, as a child that, that was kind of a, a big ticket item for you? Yeah, you know, I think it was a, a culmination of things as far as, you know, where I'm headed now with the racing thing. I I remember going to, and it's weird because I look back and I don't remember a crap ton about my child. Not like some people. Like some people, are, oh, I remember when I was seven and we did, I'm like, fuck. I, don't, I was high the whole time. I don't remember a whole lot of that. But I do remember going to races with my dad and like, you know, being broke we were in this like 1985 toyota camry like completely oxidized paint like by far the ugliest car that's gonna pull up in the parking lot and we're sleeping in like you know the dumpiest motels the night before the night after and uh just again it's kind of one of those things like hey what your parents actually did to give you a good time but I remember those all pretty vividly yeah. and, you know, impacted me today to where I'm like, I want to go back and do that professionally. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's cool. No, it, uh, it sounds like it. I mean, in terms of the Colorado experience was, 
were drugs or drink you said you didn't drink till you're almost 21 did uh were drugs a part of your your childhood at all you fucking no um and we, i'm not your recruiter you can you can be honest <laughs> i don't know man they said that too and they fucked me so um no i was uh it was funny i was i was so consumed with dirt bikes and just you know motorsports and cars that that was your drug yeah i mean it really was and it it kind of remains that way today you know i i like having a beer now and then but fuck now that i'm older i'm like hangovers are an, an entire event themselves yeah. like <laughs> you yeah, know sure. if, oh, i know i gotta set aside two days to recover <laughs> from this crap now so oh, it's fucking terrible it yeah. doesn't get any easier so i don't I, tell you. I don't do that a ton wait, anymore yeah, but wait till you hit 40 yeah so yeah. now weed wasn't i mean weed was prevalent you know in high school but it was never really my thing um yeah. hard drugs i'm sure they were there i know they were there i just yeah. i was never around them so yeah so you uh you know in turn you kind of covered the the process with which you decided to join the navy and specifically the seal teams if you could kind of just take us through the the experience of you know joining and going to boot camp and, and ultimately to uh, to buds um, to to give us that uh, that user experience on your end man it was uh it was alien because we went to meps in texas instead of colorado because me and two of my buddies were trying to because they wanted to go spec ops too and so word on the street was if y'all can go to the same meps you generally you'll get put in the same boot camp class and go through boot camp together and one of the guys had a jacked up knee and i guess the only meps so my recruiter's in prison still to this day because he was a shady <laughs> motherfucker. No shit. Yes. God yep. Damn. He was still a super shady dude. Um, and he was like, all right, you know what? The only maps that's going to accept you three together with his jacked up knee is going to be Amarillo. So we're driving down to Amarillo. Holy so we God. drove down to Amarillo to enlist yeah. in maps. And I don't think you could do that. Yeah. Like being from a different well, fucking state. Maybe like. you can't. Maybe that's why he's in prison. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so we all went through MEPS in Amarillo and it was all, you know, I had never left college. I'd, you know, again, like I said, when I growing up, I lived in two houses and they were about 10 miles apart. So it was, I've never moved states or, you know, county lines or anything like that. So it was definitely all new to me and, I was so worried about making weight going into boot camp that so we're sitting on the bus on our way. <laughs> All the other kids are like, oh, well, fuck here, suck on this candy and spit your spit into the cup and maybe you'll <laughs> drop, you know, a quarter of a pound or something. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'll work. That'll yeah. work. I'm, oh, dude, it was. Um, so you were heavy going into boot camp? Yeah, dude, I've I've never been I've never been a light guy, um, <laughs> and I I got my ass kicked in buds. I probably did buds twice. Um, being <laughs> in the, in the, the remedial being training, the fat kid going through buds, man. But <laughs> oh, that's um, fucking great. Yeah, I mean, it just takes you know putting in the work, and you get the respect eventually. But uh, yeah, I had the uh, the nickname of Iron Marshmallow. So <laughs> no shit. Yeah, That'd be a good tattoo, maybe on the lower back, no less. 
So what uh, what year was that that you came in? Oh seven. Oh seven. God, yeah. that makes me feel old. Fuck, I got out in oh eight. When uh, when you went through boot camp, then you, what? At, I guess at that time, there probably buds was your A school, right? Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> at the time, the Navy does their wave thing, where sometimes you know for two to three year period, they'll make guys go get a C school first, get a rating, and then yeah. you can come back to buds in case you fail out. And then there's other times they're like, bring it, open yeah. the floodgates. So we got to go. I got lucky and go right from boot camp two buds didn't have to waste the time doing a C school and all this other stuff. So yeah, buds, buds was my very first school and I was as dumb as could be going in there. I mean, to me, that that makes way more sense. And like when I came in, I had to go through, you know, regular boot camp and then intelligence specialist day school and then then to buds. I mean, I get it because, you know, with the amount of, you know, the attrition rate, if you don't have somewhere to go after you quit or get, you know, kicked out, whatever, then the Navy's just got all these undesignated kids yeah. on there, and they're like, we don't know what to do with them. But yeah. you know. There's always good uh, a need for just young, fucking able-bodied yeah. assholes to chip paint yeah. and fucking sweep the deck. But yep. All right, so you go uh, go through Buds, and uh, and you, what, what team did you go to first? I went, I went to seven. Team seven. Tell yep. me about uh, what gra- you know, graduating, getting your trident, and then checking into Team seven. What was that like? Man, um, so my my graduation was a little bit screwed up for, and and it might I'm I'm sure you know, but you know when I went through it was buds graduate SQT get your trident at the end of SQT and then you go into a team. But my buds graduation was screwed up because my dad had passed away three days before we graduated, so I had to fly home and I missed my buds graduation. And by the time I got back from that ordeal, I had already I had missed HAPS, which is the, the high altitude pressure training for free fall. Yeah. And HAPS wasn't willing to let me make it up right away. So I got rolled in between graduation and starting um, SQT. Jesus. And I was in yeah, I was in a weird limbo for a long time just trying to make up the HAPS so that I could start um, SQT and free fall when I went through was the very first thing you go through in SQT and you got to have that haps first. So it was weird. Uh, I got a crap ton of wind tunnel time, which was cool, you yeah. know, but it's like brown shirt rollback land when you're in buds, but I'd already graduated buds and was waiting to do SQT. So it was a really, well, it's weird not like there's any other guys in that position either. Right? Yeah, so, no, it was, it was a really weird yeah. spot to be, but, um, yeah. so what, when, when did you graduate buds? Buds was February of '08, I think. So I mean, were you ever in brown shirt rollback land? Oh yeah. So was I? Was I? No. Was I there when you were there? No, I had Ty Woods when I was in brown shirt rollback land. Okay, because there was there was a period I, I like went back and forth between Indoc and uh, and being a brown shirt really? guy. So I, I, yeah, because I, I worked with Ty for most of the time I was an instructor. God, my. You had to have had me in at least in doc then yeah. maybe, but uh, yeah, it's wild. I've had so many people on here that I put through training. It's fucking weird. That's funny. Yeah, I don't but, know. You must have been hiding out or yeah. something because I didn't see you. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I guess from uh, you know from that that point of you know being on, in limbo or whatever, and then you you get to SQT. I mean, you were with guys that you didn't go through buds with in SQT then, right? Yeah, you know. So I got rolled after Hell Week. I had uh, bilateral stress fractures in both my tibias, and I was running like a like a fucking old man, bro. Like it was 
bad. It hurt. And, you know, going through, and I think they had to have happened pretty early on in first phase because they just killed all the way through first phase up through hell week. And anytime we'd go to do surf torture, like oh, my dumb ass, I let, I let it slip one time. We were going to do surf torture and, uh, you know, they're like about face forward march. And I'm like, fuck yes. <laughs> one of the instructors like, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, well, uh, my shins hurt so bad that the cold water makes them feel better. And he was like, oh, oh, roger that. Cool. Yeah. All right, forward march, except for Canfield berm sprints. And I'm like, dude, I turned pale white. And I'm like, no, like this is going to just. So for the rest of Hell Week, instead of getting surf torture, because I loved surf torture. Fucking that guy, are you kidding me? Me and and my LT were the two big dudes in the class. So we had our little Korean foreign exchange guy. I mean, he had to have been four nine, <laughs> 115 pounds soaking wet. And he would just like curl up into a ball and just like try and survive. Yeah. So they'd put him between me and LT going into surf torture. But yeah, after that, I then I had to do berm sprints and it Fuck. wrecked me. So that was, uh, that was a fun experience. That was probably, if not the dumbest, second dumbest thing I've ever yeah. done. So yeah. I wish I would have said that earlier, yeah. but but to me, that that actually highlights a, an important uh, component of of the mentality of a SEAL instructor. You know that I think yeah. a lot of people like it, it's while there's a, a very structured routine to it. You know, if if there was any doubt or question, you know, in, SEAL instructors make it an absolute point to if they if they can find a way to maximize your suffering. Oh yes, they absolutely will. Just just like that, I uh, I love it. All right, so you make it through buds twice, basically with all the remedial bullshit. Uh, <laughs> oh, that was man, yeah. that remedial stuff. It, it was terrible because we'd get done with an evolution, and we'd be like running back to the pit, and you'd hear the whole class echo my name, and I'm like, oh fuck, here we go again. <laughs> I got to run back to the first phase grinder and just get a whole nother twenty minute beating. Yeah, and they're like, okay, you're free to go, and I'm like, then I'm playing catch up, and yeah, it was. Uh, Fun times, I'll tell yeah. you that much. But. but that's that's another thing I think uh, you know people don't don't realize is that you know there's almost like subsets of of punishment within buds where you know on a run as an example, you know the class of 160 people starting out or whatever, you know there's a, a finish line and and at a certain point. You know, there will be an instructor standing there and he'll say, you, you know, like from you on back, fucking drop, <laughs> you know. And so at, at the end of, you know, a four mile run in pants and in boots and fucking soft sand, if you didn't do it fast enough, you know, a, a third of the class or the last 20 or 30 guys or whatever, it's like, hey, you group, you go over here and then they pound the shit out of you for another 15 or And if minutes. you're back there and you're at that group, you know when it's coming and yeah. you can see the instructor yeah. starting to kind of make up his mind where he's going to make the cutoff line. Who do I want to fuck yeah. today? And you just like, okay, don't make eye contact. Yeah. Keep Maybe I can get a few more people up and avoid, ah, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're really in the oh shit fucking yeah. group every, every time. No, right? so the... On the runs, man, I don't know how. I didn't. I joined cross country three weeks before I left for boot camp, thinking that was going to help for whatever <laughs> stupid reason. And just in buds, I became a decent middle of the pack runner, you know. And yeah. I never, on runs at least, I never had to worry about goon squad. The O course, completely different story. Destroyed yeah. me, just uncoordinated retard. <laughs> I don't, I, man, it was. 
the rope swing destroyed yeah. me. It's the, you know, it's yeah. a simple thing, but um, yeah. my coordination was screwed up, and it it made me pay for it. So. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. And being in PJs by six. Let's go! The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. I don't doubt it. Yeah, I mean, fuck, we've all been there. I know I, I had. Everyone's got their kryptonite guns yeah, your heads. Yeah, that's the damn truth. Um, all right, so you're at Team 7, and one of the, the interesting, unique, and, and uh, th- aspects of Team Guys, you know, kind of after my generation that I, I really admire is you know you guys came in post 9-11 I mean I, I came in prior um, you know so it was a very different feel and element in terms of what you're going into at a team you know I mean when I checked into SEAL Team 3 at, you know Clinton was president yeah and there wasn't really much going on I mean we were doing boardings in the in the Gulf at, at Team 3 boarding oil tankers and shit but you know in Bosnia and Kosovo uh, was was winding down so I mean there was some some uh, you know potential of, of doing things, but uh, certainly not like you know two thousand six. Right, seven. right. Um, what what was that like checking into Team Seven and, and getting right into a platoon and, and knowing you're going to be going to Iraq or Afghanistan and, and knowing we've lost guys and, and guys that you probably jumped in a platoon with that have been to war and, and t- tell me about that. Yeah, so you know going to Team Seven, we knew you know Team Seven, all teams have their area of operation. So seven knew they were going to Afghanistan and you know the surrounding area, but we also had a, a secondary responsibility for the original platoon I went into at seven was Foxtrot, and we were working up to Yemen. That's where it was. We we were supposed to go to Yemen, and then the other two troops in the team were going to Afghanistan, and it was kind of weird because we had just started the new language program for SEALs. So, you know, we no longer went to DLI for the Army and all this other stuff. It was our new language school in San Diego. So me and a handful of other new guys, you know, we went to language school and it was for Pashtu, Dari, you know, and some of the other predominant languages in Afghanistan and Iraq, even though I was still going to Yemen. And then, so I worked up with Foxtrot Platoon and a uh, great bunch of dudes. And I think, you know, back to your 
to your point of, hey, what was that like? There was already combat dudes, combat hardened dudes. Most of Team Seven is what that was, com- you know, comprised of. So they were all ready to get back out there and and smash more skulls and eat meat, right? So yeah. I think with their, you know, persona and mentality, it trickles down, and you know, there wasn't really any like, holy cow, we're going back to, you know, we're going to Afghanistan for the first time. It was like fuck yeah we get to go to afghanistan for the first time kind of thing because you know there was a lot of guys going to africa and these you know low um volume places so it was it was cool to know we were going to do that and then three weeks before deployment i got swapped to troop from troop three to troop one because i had posture language background um they're like well if you got posture you might as well go to afghanistan i'm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. Yeah, no. Um, so deployed to Afghanistan for the first time, and um, that was crappy because what we didn't know, not what we didn't know, what I didn't know as a student of the language is that there are so many different dialects of Pashtun that it d- literally comes down to the different tribe in Afghanistan that it's spoken. Is it that different where you can't even fucking, so it's not like. I couldn't communicate with the guy. So my instructor for Pashtu was from Kandahar. Yeah. And Kandahar is, you know, it's a developed city in Afghanistan where it's more of a, like a proper spoken language with some westernized stuff in there, right? Yeah. So he taught us what he knew and then when we're in these super remote places, I couldn't communicate. They're like laughing at me. And I'm like, why the fuck are they laughing at me? Yeah. So I'd call the Terp over and I'm like, hey, why are they laughing at me? He goes, they don't even know it. Like you're saying things funny and weird. And, and I'm like. So it's, it's not like, you know, a, a guy with a thick New Jersey accent talking to somebody from fucking Mississippi. It's, it's not like that. No, it's, it's, it's way completely different. completely did like it's That's like. fucking crazy. Eskimo speaking Eskimo and to. Yeah, you know somebody in the south, and you're like, "What in the world are they saying?" Kind oh, of thing. So, do you uh, do you still speak any of it, or, or you know, I I can you know if I pull out like the old books and stuff like that, it'll come back decently quick. But Pashto, if I remember right, Pashto is like the third hardest language in the world to learn, just because it's so man. I mean, there's it's so intricate. And, you know, you write one way, but you read the other way kind of thing. And to me, just the fact that it's a completely different alphabet would fuck me up. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing learning a different language when you're using the same alphabet when you but when you've got to learn an entirely different character set and all that. I mean, to me, that's next level. Well, now it's it sucked, too, because it was a little discouraging spending four months in language school. And then you go to do your test at the end and they're like like you're you're not at a normal level but we hadn't really been teaching posture up to this point so maybe we didn't have a standard but i'm like dude, i'm i'm trying i really am i'm trying to learn this but it's fucking hard yeah and all all the time you know you're watching your buddies go to sniper and breacher and all these <laughs> other cool guys schools and you're like well fuck i can't learn this language get me the hell out of here and put yeah. me in you know some a cool guy school yeah and uh so, I mean, it was it was a little discouraging that you can't, you didn't really come out of it with, and then you get over there and be like, well, I can't actually even talk to, with the little bit that I do know, I can't communicate. And you're like, what a, 
waste of time, man. I mean, <laughs> fucking crazy. Oh, it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that was a little bit disappointing. But yeah, the the uh, one one big difference that I, I know between you know my first you know couple of um, years in the teams versus yours. I know you know when when we did training prior to nine eleven. It was largely theoretical, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we did have a an old Vietnam guy that ran some fucking crazy realistic training. <laughs> that I mean, at this point, they wouldn't let him do it yeah. anymore. I mean, even back then, we were all looking around like, "What in the fuck?" You know, using quarter, quarter pound standard charges nine feet away in a booby, booby trap course and shit, like blowing guys. But fucking the MSDS says, "Nah, fuck that. Yeah. Get up no, there he didn't closer." Get, he didn't give a fuck shooting overhead, and I mean, yeah, it was nuts, but. But, you know, we, we didn't have a cadre of guys who had been, recently been yeah. in combat to the area that, that the platoons were going to go. So, you know, one of the big things for me that, that I know in, in the platoons that I was in early on is, you know, we would do all this training and then we'd get overseas and, and start kicking doors in for real. And it was really fucking different. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, you know, when you were training up, having that kind of real-time feedback um you know did you get a sense that that the the training not just was realistic but was super applicable and then ultimately when you started doing it for real was there a lot of similarities or or was it still kind of that way yeah i mean especially when we got into the teams you know the the entire training cadre for the teams were all combat vets of afghanistan and iraq yeah. and they took that shit seriously you know what i mean so it was definitely you know yeah they can't train every mission set that you're gonna go do like when i was over there you know we did you know village stability operations we did um direct action stuff we did you know overwatch stuff so you can't train every single scenario but the the hot and heavy stuff that you get into over there was very prevalent in the training you know before you deployed and they you know they made sure you were ready. So, yeah. you know, they took it very seriously because, you know, obviously we had some, you know, some pretty serious losses over there and um, it's, it's not something they took lightly, which, you know, I think we definitely appreciated when we got over there and saw like, okay, we're kind of falling back into a very familiar pattern and training routine. Like we already know a lot of this, some of it, you know, you gotta, you know, war's never a, a laid out plan. So you've always got to be adaptable, but um, yeah, for the most part, they, I think they did a great job. So, yeah. and so once you went to Afghanistan, um, of what you can share, where, where about were you and what was kind of the main gig going on for you guys over there? Um, man, we did, a we did a lot of patrolling at first and it was really trying to figure out where the bad guys where, were, where they were, because we were in a very open part of Afghanistan that eventually butted up to the mountains, you know, after, you know, a 45 minute to an hour drive. And we bounced around a little bit, but, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a lot of, Hey, let's, let's figure out, you know, a plan of attack rather than just going in and trying to, you know, find these guys with guns a blazing kind of thing. So recon by fire. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And, um, so, I mean, it was cool because we got to see, a lot of the country, you know, and it's it's vastly different from what, you know, just the media portrays as Afghanistan. There's some gorgeous parts of Afghanistan. It's pretty freaking 
unreal. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, there's even a vacation destination on Western Afghanistan. I don't know if I'd ever go there, but <laughs> um, you know, it's it's yeah. it's a crazy. You know, there's beauty in Afghanistan as much as it's odd to say, but yeah. it's it's a crazy place. Yeah. So w- once you uh, you guys kind of figured out where where your area of operations was or what, you know, what parts you were going to focus on. Was there a specific mission set or was it just kind of whatever came your way? Cause I yeah, know for, for a little bit, it was kind of whatever was there. I'm trying to think back, you know, like my, my second round of Afghanistan, our mission was village stability, but that was 24, 2013. So I feel like I'm trying to think back. I don't know if we had just one specific, I'm sure we did, but at the time deployment schedules were so screwed up that I think it was, Hey, everyone just be flexible kind of thing because all three of my deployments were longer than six months. And you know, it's, it's odd for the teams to be deploying longer than six months. So it was, you know, it was one of those things where, Eventually, when we got to my last my last deployment in Afghanistan, is when the teams finally were like, "We got to fix this shit." Like yeah. everyone's, you know. So they then they mandated, you know, from boots up to boots back down in the United States is going to be no longer than I think it was six months, and so we <laughs> we were kind of the last ones to try and make up the time to get it back on a regular. So. We got pushed. I think we ended up being there for eight months um, on my last one. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was tough. I'll tell you what. After that, I've got massive respect for the Army dudes and the Marine guys that are over there for fucking 13, 15, fucking 18 months. months. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Holy shit. No wonder yeah. those dudes are fucking disgruntled, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. 18 months in that place? Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, and to me, it it uh, it further, you know, looking even even farther back, it it, it further reinforces the, uh, you know, the greatest generation adage towards the World War II guys. I mean, those guys, some of those guys went over for four fucking years. Yeah, you know, I mean, they when they went over, it was you can come back when the fucking job's done. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean that that's hard to fucking get your mind, around, isn't it? You know, yeah, um, whole whole different world, obviously, but. Um, do you remember your your first legit fucking combat operation, uh, guns blazing, fucking, and, and what what was it? What what uh, what went down? A lot of it at first was kind of soft stuff, like you know some overhead fire stuff like that, and it was wasn't anything crazy. The first the first fucking real cool one was in Iraq. We were going in on a target, you know, wee hours of the morning. And we ended up having like squirters and a, a and a, a gunfight. So me and, and we were co-oping with uh, some army ODA guys. And so me and one of the ODA guys, oh my god, we probably ran after. The, I mean, sprinting through the middle of urban Iraq, we ran after this dude for probably half an hour, Jesus. trying to track him. Like we had ISR, like hey. Go down this one. Go down this. You know, and it was it's man like some shit out of a movie, dude. We it was <laughs> it was crazy because it, we were like jumping fences. Like uh, I look back and I felt Hollywood at the time, but uh, that one was cool. Um, yeah, so I'm assuming if you guys were chasing this dude, you didn't have a dog with you at that. No, time. not at that time. I'm. I think. Uh, 
that same deployment, we had a dog guy, but he was a CAG guy, mm-hmm. Calvin. Man, what a cool dude that guy was. And I think that's where I first, so that was my second deployment in Iraq. And I think that's where I first kind of like, holy cow, these dogs are fucking amazing. Like, so yeah. I'd, anytime, anytime he wanted a bite suit guy, I'm like, yeah, fucking put me in there. I'll tell, yeah. you know, like, teach me a little bit about this. Yeah. And he was, I think he had been a handler for like 18 years at the time. So just Jesus. a wealth of knowledge on dogs. And, uh, and then on top of that, him being CAG, you know, you're just like, could this guy get any more badass? So yeah. that's Delta for you civilian assholes. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, you know, still JV squad, but it's cool. <laughs> um, Shout out to CAG. <laughs> uh, I'm st- still working on getting a, a CAG guy to come on here. Yeah, that uh, cross cross rivalry seems to seems to be uh, a bit I'm of a I'll reach, I'm, I'll reach out and try to get a hold. Of, I don't know what Calvin's doing. Yeah. These I'd, days. I'd love to get a, a a guy like that on here. Yeah. It'd be neat. But um, I'll, I'll try and find him. But uh, uh, so I'm assuming then there weren't dogs uh, attached to you guys on your first Afghanistan deployment. No, so they existed, but we didn't start. You know, at that, my first deployment was still, if you wanted to be a team guy dog handler, that was what you went and did. And then you got your dog and you would reattach to a team before they deployed and then, you know, disassociate with them after kind of thing. So when I went to be a handler, it was the very first round of, you know, we had just started NSW's dog school, right? And it was the very first round of, hey, you're still with your platoon. So just as just as that guy's a sniper and just as that guy's a breacher, those are their collaterals, you're a dog guy and your collateral is a dog, but you're still part of the platoon. Yeah, that's fucking And nuts. so you're organic to your platoon instead of being, you know, attached to a platoon. Yeah. And so, it, it, you know, we didn't have the training worked out. Nobody had ever done it. So it was, it was very um, sporadic at first. But uh, it was nice being able to work with my platoon and then bring my dog to them, introduce them, you know, all this other crap, deploy with them. Yeah, that does definitely make more sense to do it that way as opposed to attaching a, to a platoon you've never worked with before. The I think the downside of of kind of rushing it that way though is that you know to me as you well know you know collateral duty of of being a dog handler is very a very different skill set and you know a dog handler by itself i mean really not unlike sniper or or any of the other specialties takes a long time to truly master but i I think with with a dog there's there's a whole different dimension of complexity uh, that does not exist with all of the other collateral duties because it's it's a completely different skill set outside. I mean, you know, sniper is still shooting. It's still tactics. Yeah. It's still a lot of integration that already exists within the SEAL community or, or any special operations community, whereas a dog is a whole different fucking animal, a, pun it's, intended. It's a live, eating, breeding, shitting fucking yeah. thing. Like sniper yeah. rifle, you can stick in a locker yeah. and come pick it up a couple months yeah, later. Like but you don't need to understand uh, the psychology of a sniper no. rifle, you know, yep. whereas a dog is a totally different fucking deal. But going back to that first uh, Afghanistan deployment, is there any, any stories you can share of either hairy combat missions or, or really cool ones or, or big wins or big losses or just anything that, that stands out as being worth sharing? You know, it was, I don't know if we were in a, a dry area. Our, our sister platoon got into some hairy stuff. And so, 
you know they they would op when we're back so we could qrf them and vice versa but you know we'd sit there on the on the radio and you know watch their movement and listen to everything and kind of where they were at yeah we were i mean we were in the middle of the desert and as far as i'm aware they're a little bit more pushed up towards a village and in a you know known trafficking area for um the taliban at the time so my yeah the first one wasn't uh wasn't too action-packed for afghanistan anyway the first one in iraq was pretty cool yeah i guess same same question about the one in iraq uh what what can you yeah that was a lot of we did all urban stuff in iraq so it was a lot of you know jock up 11 p.m jump on the helos you know land you know 10k out from your target um midnight be into your target by 2 3 a.m do everything as quiet as possible but our (laughs) iraqi counterpart loved to like we had one guy i mean i say i don't know where he got it but i sure it's not hard to get over there he ran this is all he ran with right two fully automatic Glock 19s. That's all he wanted on him. Like, no rifle, no nothing else. He just wanted two fully auto Glock 19s, right? And, like, it was funny because even just during one op, it was, you know, same scenario where we're, we just got done humping, you know, 10K into this target. And we're, I mean, we're there. We're, there's, you know, kids and women sleeping outside and we're, we're doing a good job of sneaking past everybody. (laughs) And I guess there is an outbuilding that we didn't see on Route Recon and ISR and all this other stuff. And old dual-wielding Glock 19 <laughs> boy came up on it first, and the door was locked. And uh, he decides to whip out one of his Glocks and zip up the door <laughs> to get it open. And we're like, you know, kind of creeping through. We're like, oh, this is going good. And you're like, what the fuck? I remember listening to my chief over the radio. He goes, you got to be fucking kidding me. And and then, of course, everyone wakes up and you're like, ah, shit, here we go. And then, like, everyone kind of just, you know. Kicks the hornet's nest Yeah, the uh, the anthill's moving at that point. So, yeah, it uh, it was a lot of DA stuff, you know driving like pure assholes on the road man it was you know our convoys of humvees driving through urban iraq where were we at we were in uh mosul for that part and that's kind of what really blows my mind too is the fact that we had to go take back mosul because we pulled out so far at, so we had control when i was there we had control of mosul no question about it then we pulled out and ISIS came and took back over Mosul. And then we lost, you know, heavy Chuck, Chuck Keating, going back in there trying to retake the damn thing. And it's like, yeah. man. So sometimes I, I definitely question who's in charge of the machine and where the good idea fairy is fucking flying around because some of that shit, man, was just, you know. And it's bad when you're a platoon of SEALs over there and you're like, man. Who the fuck's running this why, thing? Why are we doing this right now? You know, so yeah. there's there's a lot of time, and I get it, man. Like you got to look at the full big picture. That was a long. It's still going. It's a long fucking war, right? So eventually, you're gonna get lost somewhere in there, and it's mm-hmm. just you know you hope the people above you that have the fucking key are making the right calls, and I mean you're gonna do it one way or another. So yeah. 
you know, it's tough to question it too much and really screw over, you know, your mentality while you're there. But yeah, I mean, uh, I enjoyed, I, en- I thoroughly enjoyed my deployment to Iraq. I was with a fucking killer group of dudes and it was, I mean, it was fun. Yeah. Like the DA stuff every other night, man, it was, it was a SEAL deployment. Like yeah. that's what, you know, and it's funny too, because that first platoon I worked up at, at seven with, they were supposed to go to Yemen and I think they landed in Yemen and got kicked out, not because of their own doings, but because of political matters, right? Got kicked out. And they spent the next seven months in Bahrain drinking and partying. <laughs> and so I'd send videos back and forth to them of what we're doing. And they'd yeah. send you know videos of them drinking on the beach with hot chicks. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I, I, I would trade you guys right now. And then I look back, I'm like, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. You know, I'm glad I was where I was at when I was because yeah. it was cool. So For that Iraq deployment, um, did you, out of your task unit, uh, did you guys lose anybody? No, thankfully. Yeah, anybody get seriously wounded? Oh, let's see. The Iraq. Um, no, my my one my last one to Afghanistan. Um, we were on a foot patrol and got IED'd, and that one um, we had to have a, a couple guys flown out. That was actually our turnover op. To I mean, it was our last shoot two weeks in country i think with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. On my very last deployment, and sure enough, you know, it's our turnover op with the army unit that was relieving us, and we get fucking blown up on an IED on that one. And, man, that one was tough because obviously I had the dog on that one, right? So... You think IED got blown up, but there's a dog guy. It was a it was a fucking weird situation where it was a footpath, um, and it had about a four foot jetty on on the right hand side, running water, and then there was a bank like a four foot bank, and it was old tree stumps stacked up on this bank, and this IED had to have been f- like super old and buried for a long time, but. I just don't think the wind 
at the time was working in our favor because Nico was doing a great job of zagging the path, you know, and we, and we got down, you know, towards the path was going to make a right. And then we we're going across a bridge. And so I sent Nico to scout the bridge and check out the bridge. I waited back and then, you know, 20 yards behind us, they, they clacked off the IED and thankfully from what, you know, me and the EOD guy, um, gathered is it was an older IED and it probably been there for a long fucking time. So it was, it was more of a pushing force than it was, you know, what do we call it? The presence and the, yeah. the pushing the and all this, yeah, the, the property of the explosive was more of a pushing force. So, you know, it shattered one guy's arm and fragged a couple other guys, but it wasn't, it wasn't one of those leg takers, thankfully. Yeah. So, that one, you know, that one weighed heavy on me for a long fucking time, man. Like, why didn't me and Nico find that, you know? And yeah. that was, you know, it took just day after day after day after day of sitting with the EOD guy, going back, looking at what we collected from the from the area and being like, it was just one of those fucking things that I don't think any dog would have found it. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, it's still thank god you know the dudes didn't die from it because i don't know if i would have ever forgiven myself after that but yeah. you know I, I i can go have a beer with the guy thankfully you know to this day yeah. and it you know that helps me a little bit but still it you know that's definitely the pressure of a dog guy you know like hey that's that's your responsibility and if it gets past you yeah that's for you with you forever so yeah and, and the thing that uh that I find tough for, you know, as someone who's, you know, run a lot of courses where I'm instructing handlers and, you know, setting up scenarios for them and, uh, and things of that nature, you know, the, the, the element of available odor, i.e., you know, wind, what it's doing, you know, it, it highlights why it's so fucking important to borderline be a goddamn weatherman as a handler, you know, but, but really paying attention to, you know, not just wind, but humidity, barometric pressure, sure, you know, wind speed, you know, terrain and how, how wind and how odor moves through certain terrain, depending on what it is. And, and all that makes, makes a huge difference and, and can be the difference between a dog picking something up or not. I mean, cause the reality of, of it is, is if there's no available odor, no dog's going to pick it up. Right, you know? right. So if, if, yeah, if the wind swirls just right, or, or there's, you know, certain, uh, elements of terrain that that block it just right, and there's a valley, and I mean, there's there are a lot of external factors that can make certain um, odor patterns and and the and the way explosive odor moves through certain areas or not, you know, swing pretty wild from right. from one direction to to another. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine the that, that feeling of of living with that. But um, in terms of the the operations uh, just before we get into into some more dog heavy stuff uh, from the Iraq stuff is there is there one combat story you could share uh, of of a specific operation kind of similar to the way you just did with uh, uh, with that op that uh, that stands out as being kind of a cool one whether the the number of guys captured or um, you know an HVT that that was taken down or something like that yeah I mean we we uh Every, I'm not going to say every op because then I'd, I'd make us look um, too, too cool. But I mean, we definitely, we were going back damn near every op with an HVT or at least who we were looking for. And we had some cool ones pop up where it was like, hey, 
this guy's pretty fucking high on the pecking order. Let's go wreck his world kind of thing. So that was definitely cool. I think the one where we were working with ODA guys and where we ended up chasing that squirter because that op went in so many different directions and it really, um, it showed the worst case scenario, but in a fun sense where everyone had a great op, you know, we didn't sustain any, um, gunshots, you know, any injuries on that, maybe besides a rolled ankle or something like that. But it was, it showed how flexible a platoon of seals and really what they can get done at any one time when asked can yeah. do. Cause like you know, me and this guy, I mean, shit, we were probably three or four K away from the rest of the guys. And once we got on that, um, target, we found follow on Intel for down the street. So these dudes are like hot wire and trucks to run down the street and go, you know, wreck this house and um, we're over here chasing this dude with the ISR. And I mean, it was, uh, it was a fun op to see all of our work and training come together. And it, man, it, it went like fucking, you know, water flow. It was pretty yeah. cool. So, did you guys ultimately end up getting that guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. We, we pulled him and we pulled uh, another guy that we had no idea was going to be there. Or was a, And I think it came from the follow on house where, obviously we weren't supposed to hit that house we didn't know he was going to be there i don't know if he didn't have his didn't have his cell phone on at the time so we weren't tracking him but uh yeah we pulled him a few other guys and i think we had to make like multiple trips with the bird on that one because we pulled back a ton of fucking ton of dudes the only crappy thing with that is is you know it's not ncis over there you know you go back (laughs) and you hand them over to you know to you know the other guys and they'll get released you know the next day or two days after so So. you're eventually chasing them again because sounds like the border here yeah no (laughs) i mean that's that's yeah Yeah. it's a (laughs) it's not a well-oiled machine of how we you know in terms of post capture yeah yeah yeah, so Yeah, I mean, there's, as with anything, I mean, there's always frustrating elements to, to that machine. I know, you know, some of the targets we hit where we would capture guys, no fucking idea what happened to them. Yeah. I mean, no idea, you know, whether justice was served or not. I mean, who, who knows? I guess ultimately it's not us up, up to us for to, to decide. It's just up to us to, to arrange the, the, meeting, the meeting, I guess. Yeah. But the... Um, so you you finished that Iraq deployment, and now this is where you enter, uh, you know, the the multi-purpose canine handler portion. Uh, tell us about uh, about that process, man. So uh, I had the opportunity to go to dog school. I think we were two or three months into our next workup for Afghanistan, and my girlfriend at the time was a handler for. 32nd street on the other side of court, you know, across the bay as an MP. So I got exposure to their kennel and their dogs. And I think that combined with, you know, our CAG guide dog handler in Iraq, really the second it was offered to me and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. You know, I've, and I've grown up with dogs my entire life. Just, you know, my mom bred dogs. So we had, you know, 40 little wieners running around and, (laughs) um, 
so I, I don't, there was no hesitation for me in accepting that. But again, it was the first round of you're organic to your platoon, but you're going to go pick up this dog as a collateral and, and learn it, come back and then train us on it and move forward from there. And so there was no like path yet. There was no set, Hey, this is how we're going to do it. So it was, it was a little confusing. It seemed kind of counterproductive at times, but, um, so I go to Virginia beach for NSW's specific dog school. Right. And I can't remember when they stood that up, but it was, it was very new also. Yeah. And so we spent, uh, I think it was like two and a half months there. And I got my first dog, Little Willie is what we named him, because he was, he was a smaller mal, long-haired mal, though. It was weird. Um, Almost like a Tavern. Yeah. So long hair, he, he was maybe 50 pounds soaking wet. Little monster on the bite suit, though. Like, and he was just a cool fucking dog, like happy-go-lucky dog. Like, I think it was one of those dogs you can have around other dogs, and you're not really super worried about it. Um, monster on the bite suit, but you know, working with him, and I ended up going to um, Shaw's right for you know normal workup stuff, and we weren't taking the dogs to Shaw's at that time. And just so, for, for the listener, Shaw's is like a uh, SWAT team style kill house you know you're running uh you know swat team type scenarios we call it cqb but just so they know what it's a, it's is. a fantastic shooting school man so it is open to civilians if any of you guys ever get a crazy hair up your butt and and you want to go learn that stuff shaw's you know mid-south institute Mid- of self de- self-defense shooting i that's think it's the one still called but that's the one so shout out to shaw's yep and so i'm at shaw's and the trainers called me and they're like hey man uh we got a shit can your dog and i'm like are you fucking kidding me and they're like dude he keeps walking detection like he you know great great on the bite still nothing's changed on the bite but you know he could really give a fuck less about detection at this point i'm like god you gotta be kidding me but i'm like oh wait a minute i'm like we've got three badass dogs in the kennel we had like duke and kai and like these giant Duke was this massive Dutch shepherd that was just feared and revered, right? I, I remember him real well. Yeah. So <clears throat> he, he stole my pizza the day I met him. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that story here in a second. So I'm like, and they're, you know, they didn't have a handler. And I'm like, fuck, yes, I'm going to get one of these bad motherfuckers. And I knew Nico was there. Everyone knew Nico was there, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get one of these bad. And they're like, how yeah, we're going to give you Nico? And I'm like, fuck no. Um, <laughs> Hail no, not only no, but hail no. That dog bit everyone, man. I mean, he was an asshole. And, uh, yeah, I mean, fuck, just trying to feed the dog, he would bite you, and you're like, fuck. And trainers are like, sorry, man. He just, you know, he needs a good handler, so um, Nico's your dog. And I'm like, oh, shit. And uh, sure enough, I get back, and our very first day training, like, yeah, I'm a fucking seal, but those dogs are fucking badasses. So I was a little intimidated going up to that kennel for the first time and being like, hey, you're my dog now, and you're going to fucking listen to me. And we went and did detection, and the trainer's like, all right, as soon as you get outside of this building, you go right into very strict obedience. I'm like, all right. We get outside the building, 
And he gets a little bit far ahead on the heel, and I correct him. And he, like, on the correction, he's like, oh, momentum to come back and bite him. Yeah. As he's coming back, erp, mouth opens up, latches onto me, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is my worst <laughs> nightmare. So, you know, fucking hung him up to dry, and it was it was a rough probably two weeks getting to know that dog and i finally i had kennel duty at one night and i'm like fuck there's like a six pack of ipa in the fridge and nobody <laughs> booze, had, booze and bite dogs nobody had been kennel. drinking i'm like fuck this i'm gonna make this dog like me so um it was you know calling it kind of hollywood cliche where i just man i literally went i took his food and the beer and i shut the camel behind me and I'm in there with him and I set the food down and he's just like, and, and so Rico is half brother to Nico. Mm. I don't know if Rico has it, but Nico has this look where he's like almost looking down, but he's looking up at you through his eyes, like the wolf stare. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I got that stare and I'm like, God damn it. If I get bit again for doing this, (laughs) I was like, you idiot. So I sat on the far side of the kennel from him and I just sat down and started drinking beer and he was pretty aggravated, but he was circling slowly and he would slowly come a little bit closer and a little bit, you know, getting a little more curious about me. And I just sat, I I didn't reach out to him. I just kind of sat there and, you know, looked at him and talked to him. And eventually I got to the point where I could pet him as he went by but as soon as I'd like start scratching him or something, he'd stop and growl. And I'm like, all right, all right, we're not there yet. That's cool. You know, and fuck, man, after that, it was, you know, it start, it, it got good after that, you know. Yeah. So we, we got bonded. And uh, I tell you what, we went on, on that deployment and came back. And the trainers were like, who is this dog? And I'm like, you guys got to know, this is probably one of the best dogs we got in the kennel right now. Like, he just needed some fucking chill out time or you know with handlers attitude travels down leash you know mm-hmm. and, and i think maybe him and his previous handler were not a great fit so yeah nico ended up being just a fantastic dog it sucked because we were we were in afghanistan in the middle of the fucking summer and it was you know you get on a helo and so then you're gaining elevation and People think the higher you go, the the cooler it gets. Well, it doesn't do that until you get like atmospheres up, kind of thing. Yeah. And so, it's hot, and that he gets pretty amped up on helos, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we had forty five minute to an hour inserts on a helo, then to do another five k patrol into our VSO, and he man that poor dog would be fucking toasted by the time we landed which sucked because you know we land and whatever it's 120 degrees he's exhausted because i got i put the muzzle on him when we're in the helo and then you know five minutes out before landing i'll take it off and uh you know he's toasted and we land and i'm trying to get him to do detection and the platoon's like oh why isn't your dog doing i'm like guys he's fucking he's roasted i was like give me five minutes so, you know, I'll try and give him some water or whatever and, you know, rest him up a little bit. Seems good to go. I'd get maybe another three, 400 yards out of him and he'd be toast. Like the ground was just scalding rocks. Like he could cook an egg on that shit. 
and you know fuck it was it was another one of those things where as a handler i felt like a complete failure because i was like i don't i don't i don't know what to do like i feel fucking useless at this point because my dog's completely exhausted we haven't done anything yet you know you can't tell your dog to be calm on a helo like you can do your best to ignore him and maybe he'll calm himself down but nico's just on a helo he's just amps himself up and you know so that was tough because there was a lot of ops where you know unless we were already at our vso and you know under shade and we're and then we're going out then i could get him to work for you know a decent amount of time but man that heat sucked it out of him so that was tough you know trying to work around that as a handler and you know your platoon's expecting certain yeah you know points of performance out of you and you can't deliver and you're like fuck guys i don't i don't want to tell you like yeah i i can't get around this right now so yeah no i mean that's again there's so many intricacies of the dog that are are unlike anything else that you do uh you know in in a seal platoon that uh that i think a lot of people don't don't expect or realize or or even think about about how many missions would you say that you and nico went on uh, on that deployment well let's see so our capability is vso you know we'd go so we'd insert spend probably five days at the vso can you describe vso yeah so vso vso is called village stability operations and basically our mission set was to go into the villages in the outer parts of afghanistan that had not been touched by americans since 01 you know since the initial invasion and so you know it it had been 13, 14 years since they had seen, you know, Americans in some of these parts. So our mission was to go in, say, hey, we're here to help. Like, what can we, of course, you know, the ANA, ANP, the Iraqi National Police, Iraqi National or Afghani National Army and Afghani National Police are always prevalent in throughout Afghanistan. And we they were kind of the first ones we'd meet with because it was expected um, we tried to meet with the villagers and they really didn't want any part of it because if you get caught, especially as a village elder, if you get caught talking to Americans and then you're observed doing it, and of course, fucking ISIS and Taliban have got their little scouts everywhere, right? So if you're observed doing it, you'd find village elders' heads on a spike at the beginning of the village a couple of days later because you know they got caught talking to us kind of thing so um a lot of it was tough because a lot of them didn't want to talk you know a lot of them leave us alone like we're alive now so we're okay with it so we'd talk to a and a and p and they'd be like yeah give us bullets and diesel and we're like ah fuck you we know you're gonna sell that shit so no we'll give you hesco barriers to help fortify your positions and and we'll help you know do some route recon and stuff with you guys so our mission was to go in there figure out hey how can we help that village and what information can we get out of them about where our fucking shitheads are because that was it was a big it was towards the border of pakistan so it was a lot of foot traffic in and out of there smuggling all this other shit 
And so that's what we were really targeting was, um, you know, the, the foot traffic through there. Cause those mountains were fucking treacherous, man. I mean, there's not a ton of vehicle, you know, you'd get through there maybe on a little motorcycle or something, but there's not a ton of vehicles going through there unless it's on the main highways. And those are, you know, well, I'm not going to say well-regulated, but it's a whole lot easier to get caught running shit on the highway than it is through the mountains. So yeah. Yeah, we were targeting the the footpaths and the little foot soldiers going through there. But um, yeah, I'd say we were probably, uh, we probably did 20 or 30 of those little VSO ops out there, you know, because it was go out, you spend five, and it sucks because it was the dead of fucking heat. And you got to go sleep in the fucking dirt or on top of a building somewhere. So you're sweating your balls off going trying to go to sleep and fucking yeah you know everyone's just trying to stay happy for five days and then you go back and you know recharge for a few days but uh that's exceptionally difficult with a dog it's right? tough because everyone's like you know everyone assumes ah, okay so you you know he packs his own food and water fuck no yeah that dog's one goddamn job is to find fucking explosives before i get to it I don't want anything else hindering that dog's job. Like I don't want any distractions. I don't want him getting weighed down. So I'm packing in his food and and these dogs are camels. I'm sure you're well aware, you know, Um, especially in such heat that I started rationing myself on water so I could make sure he's, you know, fully charged up, ready to go whenever we needed him. And uh, yeah, that's tough. I mean, you're packing everything in and out for you and your dog. And then you're, you know, you're trying to make sure your dogs again, whenever the dog is needed, you got to make sure he's ready to go. So they'll deal with the heat. They don't like it though. So to me, even something as simple as sleeping, like you think about the difference between a guy that's just got to worry about his own shit versus I've got a dog strapped to me. Oh man. I I, I I can see the wheels turning (laughs) on a story on that one. Yeah. So we were, uh, we were sleeping on a rooftop and I think it was, I was getting closer to evening and I was off watch, so I'm like, ah, fuck, I'm going to take a nap. And me and Nico were tight at this point. I mean, we had spent every waking second of the last six months together. And uh, so I'm, you know, everyone kind of throws their gear in one, you know, backpacks or whatever in one spot. So I grabbed another dude's backpack to just kind of lay my head on for a little bit. And Nico's like right next to me and i don't know if he ever fucking sleeps but um (laughs) especially not when we're over there so my buddy comes to grab his bag and it's the one that i'm fucking laying on (laughs) and he goes to reach for it and nico went after him and i'm like i woke up like like you go take a nap hot and sweaty you're already out of it and I probably I feel like I had just gotten into like REM sleep, right? Because yeah. when you get, you know, woke up out of REM, you're like completely out of like don't know where you're at, don't yeah. know your own name, and I'm like the fuck. All I know is my dog is trying to attack somebody, and I'm like, holy shit! So I woke <laughs> up, and um, my poor buddy fucking was like super timid of the dog. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. Like I should have like forethought of this and just went and slept in a corner somewhere like away from everybody because i i should have known that you know something like this was bound to happen at some point 
But he was like, is that dog going to bite me? I'm like, dude, you're cool. Like, go pet the fucking guy. Like, I promise it was a one-time thing. You just, you know, you approached his dad when his dad was out of it. And you just got to understand it's the nature of a dog. So, Well, it's the nature of one of these dogs. Yeah, nature, yeah. Um, Did you have him, like, carabinered via leash to you when you slept? Or what? how how did you rig that up? Yep, so it was uh, just on the back of his harness. So anytime... We, you know, it's tough. I felt bad, but I never took him out of his working vest when we were outside the wire, you know, and generally as, as a, a operator, you're not outside of your body armor outside the wire, but on these long five day things, man, like it sucks to sleep in body armor. You got a giant plate and you, you know, trying to roll over like a fucking square wheel kind of thing. So there's times that, you know, you can de-jock for a second and get a nap in or, you know, obviously try and clean yourself up a little bit. But, yeah, so I had him just carabinered. Uh, I made kind of a, for, like, sleeping, I made a little bit more of a custom, I don't know, it was probably like a 10-foot leash so he could get up, turn, and do whatever and not bother me too much because, you know, the little short ones that we have. Little oh, four-footers. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't work too well. So, yeah, I'd have him hooked to me at all times when i wasn't watching him other than you know if we were up and about i'd let him off leash and you know he'd go around to the dudes and you know get some pets here and there and they knew you know full well i'm like hey just just ignore him until he's like hey i think i deserve butt scratches from you and he's like (laughs) kind of rubbing on him and like yeah then pet down you know reach out and pet him but don't be like getting down and calming over and you know think he's going to be a a home dog it's just not how it works but yeah, so I'd let him, you know, kind of do his thing every once in a while. And uh, it was great because he got along great with all the dudes. You know, they could play with him, and he knew, you know, a level of play versus a level of I'm hurting somebody. So obviously his, you know, any of these dogs, their level of play is a little bit aggressive compared to what a normal person would think. Yeah. You know, you're going to have some teeth marks and stuff on your arm if you're playing without a sleeve. But it's nothing that's going to, you know, tear your skin apart. So it was cool because they could play with them and I, I had no worries about it. You know, I knew the sounds coming out of him during play are different than sounds coming out of him when he's actually on a bite. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, and it makes me think of something that, uh, you know, is, is probably one of the most important things for a handler is getting to know your dog so well that yeah. you know those nuances. Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, the dog coming in, I mean, something as simple as a dog is on patrol and, and as a handler, you should be able to identify when you see even the slightest change in behavior, what, what is it from? Is it from coming into explosive odor? Is it coming into game odor? Is it coming into human odor? You know, is it, is it something he's stiffening up and showing a little natural forward aggression towards, or is it something where he's, he's confused and unsure? And, you know, same with the, the subtleties of, of playing versus getting serious and, and all those things. And to me, it's it's neat to see a, a handler with a dog that's at that level where, you know, they've they've spent so much time, uh, you know, doing different operations and, and, and both real world and training uh, to where they, you know, the, the handler knows that dog inside. Yeah. Out. That's pretty neat. Well, and I think maybe that was about the only downfall of then being, you know, still attached to your platoon and going and getting this dog as a collateral and bringing them back is if you stay on normal platoon progression, you're not going to be a handler for more than maybe two deployments. Yeah. If you do, 
you're you're going to be a little bit stunted in promotion because again as as a handler you cannot hold a position of leadership because that dog is your only fucking purpose yeah. and you you've got to focus on that dog you can't have the responsibility of you know five other guys on a fire team and having to direct them while watch your dog no as a yeah. handler that's your only priority is watching that dog and making sure you do know when a change of behavior comes about, especially on a foot patrol or something like that, or in a house doing detection. But bringing a dog back as a collateral, maybe you don't get as much time as you know, like as you used to in a handler. Once you're a handler, you're a handler, right? And yeah. and you, then you progress through the ranks of the handler, right? So the the kennel's kind of the one promoting you then, whereas. Now the way it is, you're still promoting with the platoon, and if you want a normal progression, you got to drop the dog after a deployment, maybe two, yeah. um, because if not, you won't promote properly. So I think that could be a downfall of it, where you're not getting as much time with one dog to get to know them, yeah. and the dog goes, you know, a dog now is going to go through four or five handlers before its you know working life is up, maybe even more. So. Yeah, I think that's a a poor way to do it, frankly. Yeah. You know, because one of the things I tell all of the uh, the students of mine, uh, dog related wise or or otherwise, is you know you can't explain anything to a dog. Yeah. You know, and so if you if you understand that their mind is is that A plus B equals C calculator, and they're, and they're not thinking in a language and using logic and reasoning, you know, it uh, it's it's hard on them. To, to go through that over and over again and, and they don't understand you know okay well hey deployment's got cycles and i gotta go here like they don't know yeah. any of that they know i'm spending a bunch of fucking time with this dude and now it's a different dude and now it's a different dude and you know it just throws them for a loop but uh during that deployment were there any significant uh, ied fines that that you were real proud of that uh um no unfortunately which you know as a handler you always want that that big find where you know it's it's going up to the you know area commander and you know it's one of those things where you feel like yeah i fucking made a difference i yeah. made an impact i got this shit i mean for every fucking cachet you find there's 20 more hidden out there but still have you know knowing you found one that they could have used against your guys and a fucking tick um is would have been cool but we didn't yeah you know, we didn't really have any significant i think a lot of um where we were at were not you know and the routes that we were taking were pretty benign. again they were you know they had been abandoned for god knows how long by americans right so it wasn't yeah. wasn't an area where we frequent and they know where we're gonna go and watch our pattern so we we were the new guys that they were watching yeah. and i'm sure eventually you know I never followed up with the army unit that took over for us in uh, Puli Alam, which is where we ended our, that's where um, we got IED'd on the foot patrol. But uh, I never checked up with them to kind of see what was going on out there. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of those places where we hadn't been in a while. So were there there any specific uh, or any missions that, just generally speaking, the dog was used as a as a success that uh, that you can share. Oh, let's see. No, I mean on a couple, it was you know it was cool to get into the other dynamic of of 
our dogs, which is the multi-purpose going into biting, right? So, you know, doing squirter control and people running out the back door when they think they're getting away and you've got a little fur muscle there waiting for them is a cool aspect. And, you know, we got to practice a lot of it and um, never got any live bites. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just as an overall experience to see how fucking smart these dogs are and what they're capable of. Even though we say their mind is an A plus B equals C calculator, these fucking dogs are smart, man. I mean, just the capability that they possess is is something else that you, unfortunately, you're only going to get if you really dive deep into being a handler, right? And you really learn these dogs and you've got an expert teaching you and, you know, all respect to Caesar Milan, but it's not, you know... It's not the caliber of dogs we're working with. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just uh, amazing to see these dogs work and yeah. what they're capable of, and yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, no, I, uh, I hear you there. So when you came back from that deployment, I, I remember kind of a kick in the balls to you in terms of you came back and had Nico, and, and yeah. talk, talk about that and then how, how that was, uh, story came. That was tough, way. so... I had known shortly before coming back that Nico was getting retired when when we got back from deployment. And as far as I'm aware, the Navy retired Nico because he was that fucking asshole dog that yeah. bit everybody, right? Like, yeah. So you know, one of the neat things about Nico was, uh, you know, for me as as it relates to the Warrior Dog Foundation, which. You know, we started back in uh, in 2010 with the first couple of dogs. Is that you know, Nico was a dog that while while my company held the contract for the West Coast training program uh, was sourced. You know, uh, so it was kind of a, a full circle start to start to finish. Yeah, I, I forget you've got f- just yeah. ungodly history with this dog. Yeah, yeah, so with Nico, I you know when I was there during when he was paired with his first handler. You know, as he was selected. Uh, was there during his first handler course that we that we put that batch of handlers through through you know the majority of the workup of his of his first workup with his first handler and then right before they deployed I I left and and uh, then he went on that deployment and then I, I wasn't there during subsequent ones but and then come come back to they want to retire him because he's now filleted everybody open it's one of the things you know I, I, I'm just stating simply that the the reality of of you know my philosophy on on handling dogs and and how you interact with them to no different than the success that you had whereas people you know trainers other handlers uh, did not have the same success because they're kind of going about it from my perspective the wrong way is that you know we never had those issues with him he was a high drive reactive motherfucker but nobody ever got bit, right. um, you know, because we were very, very specific on, you know, using relationship and bonding and certain elements of reinforcement to uh, to shape and condition the, the dogs to do what we needed them to do, vice just making them do it. And so he was one of those dogs that you really couldn't do that with. And right. so it's kind of a travesty, really, to have a dog that at that point, I mean, when we, when we got him here at the Warrior Dog Foundation, I was just like, why the fuck would no, you retire I, this I dog? Said, I coming back from deployment, I'm like, holy shit, we've like this has got to be one of the best dogs we well, have. Yeah, in and, the and he was basically at, at the height of his prime yeah. too. I mean, he was four four and a half years old, something like that. Yeah. So, 
and and had been on a couple of deployments, you know, knew the knew the gig. I mean, like he should have gone several more times yeah. and, and could have been the most effective. But at any rate, it was it was an absolute fucking pleasure to be in a position to now retire a dog that you know that I had been a part of the initial you know start yeah. of his career at NSW and now retire him and then ultimately where you come in a couple of years later is to be able to to adopt him out to one of his handlers is pretty fucking neat the crazy thing is i had no idea you had him that whole time so i came back from deployment stuck him in the kennel and i had talked to his previous handler i'm like hey we should we should talk about you know who's going to adopt this dog because he's getting retired yeah we'll talk about it so it was sometime during that first week i was back you finally get to kind of You've got a place to put the dog that you know he's in good hands. He's safe, and you can kind of decompress and, and fix mm-hmm. your own shit for a week. So I'd go into the kennel daily because we still had kennel duty, but you're not working with the dog. The second you get off deployment, you're not going back and doing training every single day kind of thing. So the majority of the day, I'm, I'm just trying to get all my shit back in order after deployment. And on one of the days, I showed up, and um, Nika wasn't in the kennel. And I'm like, oh, fuck, somebody's out working him or, or walking him, whatever. And so I, I called the kennel master. I'm like, hey, um, where's my dog at? And he's like, oh, uh, you know, so-and-so has him. I'm like, and this is the first handler that we're talking about. I was like, oh, I didn't know he was still here. Um, why has he got him? Oh, they're on their way back to Chicago. I said, Chicago? And he's like, yeah, he's he's getting stationed out there and he and he took the dog and i'm like you gotta be fucking kidding me man like i thought we were gonna talk about this shit and i again i i don't really know what happened but i got zero say in what happened to that dog and i was fucking heartbroken man like oh it was it was bad to know that i was probably never gonna see that dog again and it's like you don't get to say bye nothing kind of thing whatever it means to the dog i don't know but um, you know. no, I mean, to me, that that fucking sucks, plain and simple. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, the one of the things that uh, that happens pretty regularly is, you know, as a foundation, our main or primary focus is to be a resource for dogs that need to be retired. And th- there's been a number of scenarios where you know there's some weird shit that goes on, or bad blood, or politics, or whatever. Not to say that this was the case, but just, I mean, in this case, even something as simple as miscommunication or people not, not letting other people know what the fuck's going on, you know, but, but that, that's happened a number of times right. where, you know, the dog will come here and people didn't, you know, somebody from the unit didn't know that or thought it was going somewhere else yeah. or whatever. And it's just like, how the fuck does this, does this happen? You know, but you know, to me, it was, it was a very simple, Hey, you know, Nico needs to be retired. Can you, can you take him? And I was like, well, fuck yeah, we can take him. And that, and that was to the extent with which I knew what was going on, hmm. you know? So, but you know, to me, to, to hear that, it's just like, God damn, what a kick in the balls. Man, and it, I, yeah. So, you know, for fuck, it was two and a half, three years while he was here at warrior dog foundation. I had thought he was with the first handler in Chicago and I mean, fuck, you could ask my family, my friends, fuck the other team guys. That's that dog is all I fucking talked about, man. Cause yeah. that, I tell you what, that dog kept me out of some dark fucking places in Afghanistan that last deployment. Cause yeah. I had, I went into that deployment in a fucking very serious relationship, one that I had planned on proposing to when I got out and six months into it, 
a simple one-line email came in that said, I'm sleeping with someone else, and you had better believed I had plotted her death a thousand different times. She's saying that on deployment? Yeah. Well, Jeez, an email came in to me and said, yeah, I'm sleeping with someone else. That was it. That was the last I, last I heard. Holy fuck. And so not three days after that email came in, there was an Army unit that got... Uh, a dump truck full of bombs driven into their base. So half of their fucking base got blown away. And I think it was, you know, maybe 30 or 40 dudes on the base and there was seven or eight left there. And they were, they were massively concussed themselves, but you can't just abandon the base with all your fucking gear there. Right. So, um, we got called and they're like, Hey, you got to go run, you know, fucking security for these guys. So we flew out there last minute um, had no idea how long we were going to be out there, but you know, it's, it's a base that had just been completely shredded. So there was no, you know, no power, no running water. There was no shitters. You know, the only water that was there was the shit that had been baking in the sun for fucking three years that you, know, you might as well just be fucking consuming all kinds of good carcinogenics at that point. But so we ended up being out there for five fucking weeks sleeping in the dirt running um, security for these guys while they got the shit back together and, you know, flew some of the concussed guys out and brought fresh guys in to, you know, get the base back together. And, you know, we were out there for five fucking weeks. So I had five weeks of literally nothing to think about but that whole fucking scenario. God damn. And I tell you what, man, if I didn't have that dog with me, I don't know where I'd be at today because I was fucking in a dark place and I will literally attribute me being a sane person today to that dog because he's he was such a fucking cool dog. I think every dog owner talks to their fucking dogs, right? As (laughs) as stupid as you feel doing it, if you were to record yourself like, this is stupid, but Man, it fucking helped. And uh, Nico's a good listener. Yeah, great, great fucking listener. Yeah, absolutely. That's the good news about all dogs. They all, they're all good listeners. The head tilt. Yeah. So it was, it was a a fucked up situation. But it was. I guess the good news is, is that you know, after that period, once, once you know, you reached out and said, "Hey, you know, I heard you." Yeah, I was on a flight home, um, just from looking at new jobs after I left the military. I was still in, but I was flying out and doing interviews. I was sitting next to a Marine on a plane, um, and he was getting out. And I'm like, hey, bro, what do you want to do when you get out? And he was like, oh, I'd love to get into dog handling. I'm like, oh, dude, I was like, I'll hook you up when we get back to San Diego. I know a bunch of guys. So I'd called uh, John Devine um, when I was making a connection flight. And I'm like, hey, dude, I was like, if this guy comes and picks up shit at your kennel, do you mind you know, teaching him a thing or two while he figures out what he's doing? No, no. Hey, by the way, uh, Mike Ritlin has your dog. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. 
So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And I'm like, uh, Willie? He's like, no, I, I knew Willie was at a police force somewhere, and I'm like, oh, okay, what dog? He's like, Nico, and I'm like, no, you know, the first handler has Nico, and he goes, no, Mike has Nico in Texas. I'm like, are we sure this is my Nico? Yeah. He's like, yeah, bro. And I'm like, what the fuck is he doing there? And I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I got to call Mike. So I called you up. And I remember exactly where I was standing, time of day and everything else. I'm like, bro, do you have Nico? And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I got so excited, dude. Yeah. I was like, this is fucking nuts. I'm, you know, then we went through the whole story, like trying to put the pieces together of yeah. how you got him. And, you know, yeah. so he was here for a couple of years. Yeah. You know? um, a long time. And it, you know, it made oh, God. I was happy to know that at least he was here and not fucking like some of the horror stories that we yeah. hear, like picked up somewhere in the fucking desert, oh, like I know. crazy fucking stories. Right. So yeah. I was happy to know he was here, but I was like, dude, all this time I could have had this dog and nobody fucking told me. So I think my first question to you is like, when uh, can, can I, I get him? Yeah. When yeah. can I come and get him? And you're like, Oh, well, we got some complications to override yeah. on that. But I mean, we eventually worked it out, and yeah. I flew down here and snatched his ass. And I won't lie, I was a little bit intimidated approaching the kennel again <laughs> for the first time. But I think a, after about yeah. half an hour, we were uh, yeah. we weren't we weren't back to a hundred percent. But he, I think he definitely. It looked like he remembered. Yeah, from, from my standpoint, yeah, having, I was having spent as much time as I did early on with him and then again and, and then seeing the way he responded to you it was pretty pretty yeah. noticeable on my end and, and it was honestly it was one of the neatest moments of, of the entire excuse me history of of being a part of the warrior yeah. dog foundation because you know not just the full circle aspect of it but knowing how much the dog means to you and, and just being in a position to be able to facilitate that was really fucking cool man and i mean you know, it so, was it, it it was cool that it stayed, you know, within the circle kind of thing, you know, and yeah. within the family and, you know, slowly learning about the history that you had with him was super cool. You know, you've got his half brother here as your personal dog. And it was, it was definitely cool. You know, I, I was, I was happy to be able to come back down here and yeah. especially on Memorial day and talk about this, you know, God yeah. bless all of our guys that have gone before us and, and not come home. I'm, you know, I'm glad that we can sit here and, um, you know, live out and hopefully honor them as best we can in, yeah. in ways that we think is appropriate. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, a couple of questions I had written down. I just were there. Is there anything that uh, funny or crazy that you can share about bringing him into the house and and reintegrating him into your life? Oh man, <laughs> that dog will hold his shit as absolutely ungodly long as possible and it just man one day <laughs> we were lucky enough to be near a pool for my last work detail and yeah he had a, a bad day that day and an upset stomach and let it i mean literally but didn't blink an eye and he's a fast fucking swimmer too yeah. So there's just a little jet stream behind <laughs> hey, him shit, in a while pool. He was swimming. And I'm like, oh, 
fuck, man. Oh, like, so I spent the rest of the day cleaning that damn pool, man. Like, and but again, not like not like stop in the middle of swimming. Like he's so ball driven. He could yeah. give a shit. Oh, he gave a shit. That's for damn sure. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, a little jet trail going yeah. behind him in the pool. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. But that dog, man, he makes me laugh every damn day. He's, yeah. he's a funny fucking dude. Any, uh, any close calls with him almost biting somebody or biting somebody since you've had him? Um, yeah, that's, that's one thing that I will say that's pretty fucking neat is, I mean, talk about home security, like dude, having that motherfucker. And at I your tell house. you what, it like um, we had a fucking a cable dude come in one time, and I mean, I don't know this dude's past. I can assume it was pretty hairy because he's got like the three teardrops coming down <laughs> out of the corner of his eye, fully tatted, dude. And I'm like, all right. And normally Nico's pretty good. If somebody comes in the door, he's like very alert and focused on that person. But if I tell him to stay in his bed, he'll stay in his bed. On And this guy comes in and just, I could see it early that he was picking up on this dude pretty hardcore. And he got up and hair stood up and he started like at a decent brisk pace going towards this dude. And I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. And man, I <laughs> slammed my fist on the table. I'm like, get over here. And he like, he stops and he's still staring at the dude. And normally he's like, oh shit, I got to get back to dad. And, yeah. and this time he was like still hardcore. And I'm like, holy fuck. So I go and grab his <laughs> collar. And I'm like apologizing to the dude, though I don't know I should. Yeah. And fucking when we were in Puerto Rico, though, his canine went right through my arm. We were playing ball and his <laughs> ball went into the street and there's traffic. And I knew he wasn't going to stop for traffic, nor them for him. So I grabbed his collar, and my dumbass, I didn't tell him, you know, that the ball is mine now. So he's, he's still in full drive mode thinking that's his ball. Yeah. So I've got his collar, and we're, I'm walking him down to the edge, and it rolled into the gutter. And so I kind of, dumbass me, I pull back on him just as I'm reaching down for the ball. So he's in full drive mode sees my hand going for the ball and latches onto my arm and I, he immediately knew he fucked up yeah. um but you know and it was i felt bad after that because the rest of the day he was like trying to like suck up to me like <laughs> oh dad i'm so sorry i didn't yeah. know but i mean his canine yeah, went straight through my arm and big old fucking scar. that's when uh this is right after the the hurricanes in puerto rico so like fucking nobody had power none of the hospital i was like i'm not going to fucking one of these hospitals that doesn't have power right now to try and get stitched up and probably get an infection and have to get my arm cut off and i'm like fuck it so i went to the the med kit and just dumped whatever i can fucking ended up sewing it up myself and it came out terrible but <laughs> now i've got a fucking story yeah. for yeah forever on yeah that. they're yeah. like who's the scar on your arm I'm like Oh God! All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no shit there. I was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's uh, great shit. I know we're getting a little tight on time. I wanted to talk about kind of what you have going on now. You you transitioned into being a fucking NASCAR driver, which <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, what? You know, but to me, it's fucking nuts. Can you uh, describe that process? And and obviously, I mean, I have written down why. I mean, everybody knows why, but if you if you could just talk about the transition into that and 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 talk about what it is that you do now man so 
Um, that for me was one of those things where, again, every weekend I was in the teams, I was trying to race something. And it got to the point where I'm like, fuck. Like, Do you take that attitude in the bedroom also? Yeah. Like, try to fuck, knock it out yeah. quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I want to go try and get paid to do this. So, you know, I made my decision a, a year and a half prior to getting out to, to leave at 10, 10 years and go and pursue NASCAR. But nobody's ever done it. No, you know, nobody's ever left um, the military cold turkey to go try and be a NASCAR driver, right? So there was no path to follow. There was no really advice anyone could give me that would really set me up for success kind of thing. So it was all feeling it out on my own. And man, I, I royally thought I had fucked up for a little while because I was fuck, you know, I got out, then you don't have the paycheck, you don't have, you know, so I was doing, you know, executive protection gigs here and there. And that's, it's still what I do today, but it's because it's flexible enough that I can still go do NASCAR on the weekends when I need to. And shit, man, you know, six months ago, I hit a fucking low point, bro. I was, I was broke. I didn't know where I was going. I felt stalled out because NASCAR, man, if you don't have funding in NASCAR, you're not going anywhere because, you know, you can, there's budget teams and I, and I currently, I race for a budget team right now. And then there's mid-level teams and then there's top level teams. But even the mid-level teams that I was trying to race with, shit, it's expensive, bro. And I, I don't think, I definitely didn't know how much it was actually going to cost and especially without sponsorship. So, you know, my whole first three races were self-sponsored out of my pocket, which may not have been smart because I, dude, I, I fucking, I was late on bills after that. It was bad. Um, all because I wanted to go fucking race a car. Right. Yeah. And most people were like, you know, you can't do this. Like, unless you have a famous last name yeah. or a whole fuckload of daddy's money, you cannot go and do NASCAR. Like good fucking luck to you. And every time somebody said that it fucking built a whole nother fire inside me. And I'm like, fuck yes. Like, the same feeling when I said, I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL and people are like, huh, good luck to you kind of thing. You know, I'm sure yeah. you got the same thing from a few people and yeah. you're like, fuck yeah, fuck you, but fuck yeah, bring it on. Like keep yeah. saying that shit. Cause yeah. that fucking yeah. fires me up. Yeah. So it was the same thing when I was going through buds, I felt that when I, you know, so I rented a fucking budget ass busted car and I went and raced and we did decent and like people took notice and I'm like, holy shit, like maybe we can do this. And yeah, I just kept fucking building my own fucking momentum. And uh, man, sponsorship, that one's fucking like, I I feel like I could hammer everything else that's required in NASCAR. The sponsorship though, yeah. holy fuck, it's hard, man. That's like, pretty much the name of the game, right? Is, yeah. Is that's what what's paying the bills and all yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's, you know, what equipment you can afford. Because if you're not, I mean, there's been some, you know, off scenarios where there's been big wrecks and dudes in you know budget teams have won races but um for the most part if you're not running the newest best equipment which is what all the other top five guys are running you're not going to be in there so it's you know you got to get the funding to get a decent ride Uh, at a mid-level team you can still compete with the top five but 
in a budget team, it's just it's fucking tough. So, yeah. I, what what separates those three levels? Is it is it an amount of money? Or? Yeah, it's oh, it's so a what is it? Yeah, it's a huge amount of money. I mean, um, like what are the the differences? Um, so, in a budget team, I'm I'm running on one one thirty second of what they budget for every race is what I'm at. So, if they budget sixty grand for a race, I'm running off of five. And the fact that we were still able to compete with them or at least worry those teams when we're running off a five grand and they're still running off a 60 showed, you know, me and my team that, yeah, we can do this. We just got to, you know, get a little more work behind it and some money and, and we'll do great. So, you know, in the teams, it's shut up, do your job, stay off of social media and you'll be a fucking rock star. Great. That all went well for me. And then you get out and you get into NASCAR and they're like, okay, so you on social media? Okay, so you know, you gotta tell your fucking story. And I'm like, they're like, Do you have social media? I'm like, uh, no. And they're like, Oh, you're a fucking lost cause. And I'm like, oh no. So, you know, like the last year and a half, we've worked really hard on social media. Um, the last, you know, again, when that I hit my low spot, and I'm like, okay, what? what is immediately in my control that I can start working on to fucking improve my situation. And that was, Hey, get yourself educated in marketing because I was doing all my own stuff. You know, there's some of the drivers that have dad's money that they have a marketing team. They have a full pit crew. They have, you know, all they got to do is go and practice and drive. Mm -hmm. I'm fucking wearing every goddamn hat under the sun, along with a few other volunteers, you know, guys that don't do this professionally that have their own jobs, you know, so you're driving your own vehicle to the race. You're working on your own vehicle at the race. You know, they're, they already, they're coming prepped to the race with, with the budget team, the second you get there and that gate drops, guess what? You're prepping the car at the track. Yeah. You know, because I was in California. The team was in Idaho, or the other team that I'm, uh, the mid level team I'm trying to get on with is in Tucson. So, uh, you know, I'm never right there, but I was running my own tires, you know, doing my own admin work. And it's just, man, it really opened up my eyes. And I think it's only going to benefit me in the end. But that's yet to see, you know, we're meeting with. A few potential sponsors this week. One of them is back here in Texas, so uh, hopefully, hopefully, be on the lookout for some good news from that. Really fucking great dudes that uh, I hope to you know be able to tie into a whole lot of what I've got going on in life and you know Warrior Dog Foundation. Hopefully, bringing bringing you guys back into the loop somehow and you know Greenlight Society getting that. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that's kind of been put on the wayside recently just as with how busy i've been um but you know hopefully bringing all this back full circle and making some cool shit happen and being being the first navy seal to go to nascar man so i I love it the uh one one i have a number of kind of nascar specific questions yeah you mentioned well one thing i know you're a little tight on time do you have a few extra minutes yeah let's go so the one of the things i'm curious about is is the limits right is that you know obviously uh, a, a top team has, you know, not unlimited funding, but has serious funding. Is there still like a restriction where it has to be under a certain amount of horsepower or? Yeah. So like- it's all spec, right? So there is a certain spec that everyone has to fall underneath, but um, within that spec, there's still wiggle room for 
better stuff within that spec. And if you're a budget team, you're running an engine that probably goes near a full season without a refresh, right? And these motors, I mean, they're at the ragged edge of blowing up already um, because they're running such high RPM. You know, it's no forced induction stuff. So it's all naturally aspirated. It's super high compression. And any engines that run, you know, race gas with high compression, the lifespan's not great. So um, as a budget team, you're running this motor that's been trashed on for how many, God knows how many other races. And, you know, the funded teams probably have a refreshed motor every third race or so. So they're always up on horsepower, right? At any one time you can, you know, put the two motors on an, on an engine dyno. And of course that, that motor that's been refreshed is going to have a a pretty significant horsepower advantage over the one that's just been beat to shit. So, you know, the, the parts and the pieces that are in the spec area that make up for it. And also, Having a full-time paid crew is massive because then your crew chief absolutely knows what they're doing, right? And I'm not saying my crew chief didn't, but he was also a racer, um, you know, a newer racer when you look at racing as a whole for the NASCAR series. So, you know, he was still learning also. And so we were both learning at the same time. And with a fully funded team, you've got a guy that that's all, that's his job. He gets paid to be a crew chief. This guy, you know, my crew chief, I'm like, fuck dude. I was like, can I buy you a sandwich in your hotel room? And we call it good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's fucking, so it's kind of like that. What I'm running on right now is sandwiches, fuck sandwiches, man. And, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a reach around for me later, but, um, it's tough because those fully funded teams are a well-oiled running machine and they do it like clockwork where me and I'm like, can I throw money um, at this last minute and try and get enough of it to rent a car to go do this race. Yeah. yeah? Okay. We're going to go do it. Can't, Hey, can you guys, you know, come to the race last second? Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, that, that begs the question, obviously, you know, funding plays a huge role. How, how much, I mean, one thing is somebody who knows fuck all about NASCAR, yeah. you know, how, how much of it is skill? I know that there's obviously skill involved, but I mean, if, if funding plays that big of a role, I mean, is is that most of it, or or is it legitimately like the the Dale Juniors and the Jimmy Stewarts? Or, oh, you know, who, like are they le- legitimately that much fucking Absolutely. better of a driver? Um, and, and what does it take? Because there's so it's it's a lot of a experience and b skill when when you're in that car, man. I mean, it's you're doing 200 miles an hour around a track and any tiny little movement of that steering wheel is pushing you five feet one way or five foot the other way, right? Yeah. Um, the steering boxes are severely reduced ratios. So a little jerk like this is a, is a pretty big movement on the track. And it was, you know, you got, yes, it takes to be a top guy, to be a champion, you know, if, if you're labeled champion, you've got the skill, there's a lot of dudes in the the cup series that just pay to race because they enjoy it. And, you know, yeah, if they had a better budget, they'd probably do better, but um, they'd never be champion because the skill really isn't there. I think they just enjoy doing it kind of yeah. thing. So 
Yes. Uh, I would never, ever take anything away from the great saying that budget was all yeah. you know, what you needed yeah. to get it done because it does take skill, but it takes a combination of the both to make a championship yeah. happen. So, and, and do you think that, just like a lot of things in life, that there's some just kind of natural aptitude for for that or it's just fucking experience um no there's definitely i think there's a natural a natural part to it for me it's just come over doing crazy stupid shit with vehicles over the years (laughs) since i was little you know yeah Uh, me and my dad always building just frankenstein shit and it being completely unsafe but still going and just ripping it up yeah so i definitely think there's a naturalness to it a lot of it has to be learned because it's an experience that you can't you don't you can't go and get it on the road right you you have to be in well not with that attitude yeah well fuck me right (laughs) so you have to be in the car to know you know how the car is going to react how to drive the car at that speed um feeling the car is a giant thing so as a driver you got to be able you have to give feedback to your crew chief to say hey here's what I'm feeling. I can't drive as well when I'm in this part, it's too tight. Or when I'm coming into this part, the ass end is too loose and I want to spin out. And then when you give that feedback to the crew chief, the crew chief says, okay, here's the adjustments that we're going to make. So it's not up to the driver to make adjustments. It's up to the driver to provide feedback to the crew chief. And then the crew chief says, you know, with all my um, gears of wisdom and experience, we're going to fucking make one half a turn on that and it's going to fix the kind of thing. That's yeah. not always it, but yeah. sometimes maybe that is it. Maybe it's literally just, hey, I'm a little bit too tight coming off of turn four. I can't turn like I want to. You know, you take half a turn out of the track bar and the car settles down and you're fucking gravy. Yeah. So one thing back to the horsepower thing, is there a, it can't be over this amount of horsepower? Yeah. So and, it's, and what, and what is it? Um, well, it depends. So um, 2019, 2020, they're, they're doing a lot of package changes with aerodynamics. So they're putting a lot more drag on the cars to slow them down because these cars back in 2017, 2018, they were fucking 900 horsepower, bro. Like mind-boggling horsepower numbers and going around a super speedway, they were well over 200 miles an hour. And obviously, safety is a big concern. So, and then again, when we get into budgets, so if you're a budget team and you cannot afford to refresh your motor after every race or after every third race, there will be a massive on a super speedway when there's that much distance to cover. Um, the difference between a funded team and a budget team will be apparent immediately because that that budget car just cannot keep up on super speedway, right? There's so much downforce and drag on that car that if you don't have the horsepower to punch a hole through the wind with, you're just, you're not going to keep up. So with 2019 and 2020 now, they've reduced, I think um, super speedways now we're down to like 550 horse and a much bigger aero package so the spoiler's bigger on the car it makes more downforce makes the car slower but also that gives that budget team a little bit of it it makes the racing tighter right so instead of seeing fucking 
Kyle Busch way out front. Nobody's going to catch him kind of thing. It brings the whole pack in closer. It makes for better racing, yeah. personally. So I'm excited to see you know some of the, the changes that NASCAR has done were a little bit ludicrous and, and made everything super confusing, and the drivers were not happy with it. But then there's other stuff that um, I think they're kind of whining you know, going to bring it all back into a good close racing style again, yeah. um, which is good to see because then it's going to come down to talent. So, yeah. Yeah. and one thing I'm assuming just because of the length of the race and the conditions is physical fitness does play a role. Oh, absolutely. Right? Just yep. yesterday. So yesterday the race in Charlotte inside the cars, they've got, you know, digital readout thermometers for the camera to see, but inside the cars, you know, at speed, it's still, you know, during the day, it's still 120 degrees in the car. Yeah. And then you're, you're working in that car, right? You know, you're steering, you're thinking, you're listening, you're shifting, all this other crap. Um, it's more physically demanding than most people oh, probably Oh, way, realize. way, way. Yeah. And, man, I tell you what, they're a little bit more serious in a – because their races are a whole lot longer than mine in my series right now. Mine are pretty short to where – I can just hydrate like a motherfucker and I'll stick it out through the race. You sweat like a pig and fucking man, it's, it's grueling, but I'll be okay afterwards. Yeah. If I were to do that with a longer race, I'd probably screw myself. So they, they definitely take, you know, at the, at the, the top level, you know, they've got trainers, they've got diets, you know, there's certain, uh, we call them an air conditioner in the car. It's not really an air conditioner. You know, it might bring temperature down 10 degrees, but it blows air through your helmet nothing worse than having hot air blown in your face so if you can keep your head a little bit cooler yeah. hopefully your mind stays intact but yeah. uh I wonder if it, i mean what about like a fucking spacesuit that's liquid cooled yeah so they we we've got cooling shirts but then you got to start looking at you know how long does that cooling shirt last because that's a fucking like yesterday was i think it was a four-hour race ice circulating on a hot body isn't going to last that long so yeah. You might get it for the prime part. And it obviously that race went into night, so it cooled down and so you probably don't need that heat gear as much then. But yeah, yeah so they've got cooling shirts and but yeah. then you're adding weight to the car, yeah. you gotta add water, ice all and you're like and, and, and or if it fails now you're doubly fucked. Exactly. You're, you're carrying know. around a fucking extra yeah. twenty pounds of shit. So yeah. Yeah, yeah it's uh, I think it's a give and take. Um I'd like to think with, you know, our past training and not again not to take away from from the current drivers but a lot of them have just graduated high school never yeah. held a real job um yeah. you know really don't know what the cold hard world has to offer yeah and so i think you know with our mentality in the past everything we've gone through everything we've learned everything that's been you know pounded into your head about what the human body's capable of what the human mind's capable of and if you combine those two and you do it right with a good budget with a good budget holy yeah. shit man like yeah. we might be able to make something really fucking cool happen here yeah. so yeah that'd be awesome i when you were talking about hydrating dehydrated it made me think uh do you bring fucking snacks like are you are you eating and drinking in, in there or is in it- the car you know for the longer races you know i'll have a water bottle with a fucking uh, a tube coming to my mouth kind of thing but now nah, you don't snack in there helmet there you know me and my fucking 
diehard love for my beard. There's really no fucking room in there to be shoving <laughs> fucking Cheetos and shit in my mouth. So. I, mean, I didn't know if you do like goose or you know power gel shit like no, that. No, may I? You know, uh, uh, that would be a good question that I'd like to ask one of the you know the the cup drivers. Because um, how how long are those races? They're yeah. So like yesterday's race for them was four hours. They're generally probably about three two and a half three hours. So it's a good. And and it's never not cool in those cars, right? Because yeah. you got there's you got one window, especially on a super speedway. The rest of the car is all you know plexiglassed off. Yeah. So you have one window that stays open, and it has a net on it. So there's not really the aerodynamics of those cars push all the air around the car. Yeah. So to get any air in the car, it's either the the helmet blower. Or if you're in a position on like a caution lap or something, you'll see drivers stick their hand out the window right there, and they just kind of make a little cup to try and yeah. bring whatever air in they Break can. Break your fingers for, yeah, at 200 miles an just hour. Just a sec. Well, <laughs> you know they're they're down on speed at that yeah. point. But yeah. uh, I, if you make it to the to the cup level, I uh, there's gonna no, be a, when I make it to the cup. So, damn so, it, Mike! So why next, you got to do that? So man? later this year, when you're at the cup level. <laughs> Uh, we're going to need a fucking video of, of you with Nico's head sticking out. Oh, the window dude, I, I've got so many fucking yeah. cool ideas to incorporate yeah. Nico in a NASCAR. Like, um, I'm yeah. just waiting, man. Yeah. I'm waiting. That'd be awesome. Miles per gallon. What, what is there an average of gallons per mile? Is that what it is? Yeah. Holy fucking Christ. Really? Yeah. Um, like so gallons per especially mile. at the super speedway level, man, they'll burn through, you know, 16 gallons of race fuel in, half an hour maybe so let's see if they're doing 30 laps so yeah i mean you're probably doing about 100 miles before you got to refill up again so 16 gallons for 100 miles so i mean you're still getting i mean obviously it's 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 very calculated though i mean like at the at the cup level fuel consumption is very very calculated my races we don't have pit stops we don't have to worry about refueling and you're generally you're going to make it through the race no matter what unless it's like super long we got a ton of cautions or you know a red flag start and stop kind of thing um in my races you're you fill up once and you're done and and you'll be closer to empty when you're done but not you know running on fumes kind of thing in the cup level it's so freaking calculated on i'm excited to be able to learn about that shit but uh is it because of weight they, they don't want to carry any more than they yeah exactly yep so literally if you can time it and obviously getting fuel takes time so yeah. and if you can time it to where hey i think and you'll you'll see you know there's a lot of past examples of cup drivers running out literally on the last lap they're like yeah well let's go for it man like if we're not going for it here we're not doing it at all and you'll see them run out just like turn three going in turn four (laughs) there's the finish line they're in the lead and all of a sudden they're you're like no 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 what what the fuck is he doing man why is he slowing down he gets passed by three or four cars and they'll tune into his radio guys i'm out of gas you're like ah fuck but damn just think how how cool that would have been if you ran out just after so guys are pushing the level i mean yeah that's such a science up there that what does uh one a gallon of that fuel cost um i think that's like 12 13 bucks a gallon jesus christ yeah um have you ever cramped up while you're driving um trying to think and how the fuck would you handle that like if you because you remember like in yeah. the, the calf cramps and shit or, oh yeah dude like what? well i think uh you know for me having that buds experience 
I hydrate like a son of a bitch before a race. I'll start a few days and just I'll be waking up in the middle of the night like a chick pissing every fucking <laughs> half an hour kind of thing. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, I don't. I don't think i've cramped yet but you just work through it bro yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. you're on and off and guess what you gotta shit your pants you, <laughs> either do it or pants. shut the fuck yeah, up do it or shut the fuck up and run don't be bitching about it you know yeah, yeah. it's just you ain't your buddies ain't gonna help you not shit your pants yeah. so yeah well it depends on how close your buddy is that's but, true uh, that's true one of the questions I had in terms of the, the amount of races how many races have you done at this point um i've officially officially done three full nascar races i started a fourth but that was at the beginning of this 2019 season and man my fucking sponsor dropped out the day of practice so i had to show up at the track the teams like got my car ready to go and i have to show up at the track i'm like how the fuck do i tell my team i can't fucking race because i can't afford it um god damn they dropped on the day of. oh dude and that was my fault for not getting papers signed earlier i learned my lesson hardcore on that one but you know so you get there and you're like yeah. can you share who that sponsor was or you i don't? can't well i could but i'm gonna fucking take the high road and not yeah. so um yeah i got to the track i'm like i fucking hate to tell you guys but i i can't my sponsor dropped out and i cannot that was with a mid-level team yeah. so my the budget, you know, quadrupled. Yeah. And that wasn't something that you can just pull out of your pocket yeah. that you make Slap in a it month. on a credit card. Yep. So yeah. I was like, I can't, like, I, I will pay for whatever I can, you know, hauler fuel to get the car here. Obviously, the wrap or, you know, stickers on the car, crew time, some hotels. Like, I'll pay for what I can, but I cannot afford to do the race at this point because on those teams, unless you have a full budget you're responsible for the repair of the yeah. car if you wreck it yeah. and that gets expensive yeah what i mean obviously i know in the different tiers it it varies wildly but what what does a if you could contrast you know kind of the the, the bottom level car cost and then the no shit like this is the most you've ever heard of a car costing at the at the top end i mean i if if for the the budget team that i race for you know i think we pick up cars for 25 30 grand you know they might be missing a piece here or there from a wreck before but you know we'll pick them up and rehab them into a, a workable car and then you know full full sponsored budget teams are buying brand new cars you know assembled maybe minus a motor package because everyone thinks their motor is special but that 150 grand 175 grand so yeah. it's it's a significant and those 150 175 grand are brand new you know this year newest you know developments and chassis and all that other shit whereas what i'm running fuck the the first car that i ran the first two cars that i ran um were both probably 13 14 years old stupid old technology right again motors that have been thrashed on for god knows how long without a refresh and the you know these cars are barely passing tech yeah and tech you know at my level they're like we've got budget racers at my level right and with there's budget racers at every level but at my level it's there's you know it's blue collar dudes that are trying to come in and be a nascar driver and so tech obviously there's some hard and fast things that they can't let pass but sometimes they're like feel bad for you yeah like <laughs> all right just fucking make sure it gets fixed before you know yeah. we race kind of thing so yeah yeah i mean uh hopefully if not 
for this season, next year, my plan is to move up to the trucks and sign on with at least a mid-level team in the trucks. But again, it all depends on sponsorship and hopefully the next couple months we I've been working on a lot of them for a long time and some of them are finally starting to come to a head so hopefully we can uh, pop that zit and make something fucking work but (laughs) who knows so obviously the primary goal is to get to that cup level right and when you say trucks forgive my uh, fucking lack of knowledge on it idiot fucking moron I I have no I mean is that like legitimately a truck or what the fuck is that yeah it's a truck body but underneath it's might as well just be a NASCAR it's yeah there are I mean they're a little bit different but uh um, same motors as the next series up. Um, they next series up has a little bit more horsepower, but yeah, it's, uh, so, it's so just, it's the there? truck body. It's just natural fucking history of the NASCAR, oh, right? Yeah. So the, it's the been the, the truck series is the bottom. Um, actually it's the Canaan pro series that I'm in now. That's, um, a lot less known, then it goes like Arca is now part of NASCAR, so they'll, they'll kind of integrate that. But the Truck Series is the first national touring series that you get into with NASCAR, so that'll be fun. And then it goes the Xfinity, which is the feeder series for Cup. And um, so I hope, which is as far as any NASCAR experts are concerned, an unrealistic timeline of getting to the Cup level, but. You know, by 2024, I plan on being in the Cup Series, making a fucking dent. So, is there are there uh, instances where drivers start at the Cup level because of who they are or whatever? No, you gotta you gotta prove yourself a little bit, you know. So, So um, there have been fast progressions before, just based off of you know family history with that, and that's not to say that they weren't good. You, you know, you can't be a fucking complete danger to NASCAR and they let you on the track. Yeah. Um, but depending on who they are and who's behind them, yeah, some are yeah. really faster than um, just yeah. like every fucking walk of life, right? Yep, nope, 100%. Yeah. If you got a if you got a good last name or daddy's checkbook, you're you know, you're gravy, so yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's that's some fascinating shit. I, you know, we could talk about it all day. I do want to uh give you an opportunity to talk about. The uh, Greenlight Foundation, or I'm sorry, the Greenlight Society, the the nonprofit that you yeah. Uh, so Greenlight uh, Society, I started, uh, I think it was five years ago now, and after my deployments, my my therapy was speed, right? Um, so I was a big proponent of going out to. Uh, I don't know how familiar you were with it with your time in San Diego, but the Glamis Sand Dunes. Oh, yeah. So Glamis was my jam, man. So every you know winter that I was in San Diego, I was in Glamis, and it's just man, it was a fucking amazing therapy release thing out there for me. And so I started taking a few other guys out with me that you know might have been having a hard time. They're like, oh, dude, it was great, and it just kind of turned into something where I'm like, man there's got to be other people that find adrenaline therapeutical right and so i was already doing the stuff i'm like it doesn't hurt me to bring a guy along with me it doesn't cost me much more and then when we were like uh, we're, we want to expand into on-road racing maybe some more off-road racing 
skydiving, spearfishing, pretty much anything. What we do is we find the guy and we've opened it up to all combat rules at this point. So, you know, if you were overseas and you were injured and you can prove it, we'll vet you. Like, don't, you know, please don't be fucking um, disgruntled and offended that we're going to vet people because there are fucking sleazebags out there that somehow fake fucking war injuries and then they benefit off of all the fucking great charities that we have out there to to help these guys you know with recovery so um, we do vet and uh you know if you check out fuck our next question is hey what did you used to do that you enjoyed that you do not do anymore or that you feel like you can't do and then we just find a way to work around and fucking get them back into it so you know there's a lot of guys fuck i used to love off-roading i don't have legs anymore we're like fuck it we will fucking find you a razor we will put hand controls on it and make this shit work and there's another um non-profit out by where i live in temecula called warfighter made and i didn't know they existed when i started mine but very similar you know mission as far as you know adrenaline therapy kind of coining that is you know they find guys and you know build all kinds of cool off-road vehicles and and adapt them to an injury yeah and get these guys back you know out of the fucking depression mode that you know you're like oh shit i'm i'm missing legs i'm not ever going to be able to do this shit again what am i doing with my life why do i want to be here kind of thing and so it's it's that you know thought that we're trying to fucking be like hey forget about it man don't like don't even go down that road because it's a fucked up gnarly dark cold road um let us fucking help you get back into what you used to do and feel the way you used to feel even though you you know you got a little less blood in your body but fuck it you know who wants that shit anyway so yeah is there a number of guys that you've been able to to help out at this point or um officially it's just kind of been you know friends and family at this point doing a lot of uh you know dudes from the office back when i was in trade at kind of thing and yeah we didn't really keep metrics on a lot of that i think um when we grow it we're going to start doing some metrics and we um we we are a 501c3 but uh um, we recently took our first donation so before that it was just out of my pocketbook which i was totally cool with because i was already doing the shit anyway right so it didn't cost me much more to take guys with me but um, now that we're wanting to expand, um, we're opening it up to donations and, you know, whatever we get, we'll work with, which is anything is cool. So yeah. how can people uh, find that and do that? So Greenlight Society, we're on Facebook, Instagram. The website is greenlightsociety.com. Facebook and Instagram, I'm pretty sure, are both um, the Greenlight Society, at the Greenlight Society. Or if you go to my personal page, which is just Taylor One Canfield, a lot, most of my stuff links back to it. So, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, and it would be cool, again, like um, roping in Warrior Dog Foundation into it somehow. Like, Because yeah. there's, obviously, we get guys that come through, fucking everyone loves dogs. And yeah. if you don't, well, then fuck you. And choke yourself. Haze yourself. And speaking of Warrior Dog Foundation, one thing I wanted to mention uh, from an administrative standpoint while, while I have your guys' ear is that uh, they are currently looking for 
uh, more people to get involved, primarily uh, from an administrative standpoint. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'll come to the ranch and help rehab dogs, uh, we've got that angle of it covered. But uh, from a back office standpoint, I I encourage if if it's something where you've got experience or you know people that do that uh, may want to get involved from, uh, from an admin, higher level admin standpoint, I encourage you to go to warriordogfoundation.org uh, or email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at warriordogfoundation.org. Uh, so please do that and, uh, and see what, uh, what kind of qualifications you can bring to the table. Man, you want to feel good, come help out Warrior Dog Foundation. You know, just even being a benefit of Warrior Dog Foundation, I, you know, and seeing the joy that you get out of running the thing. And I, I've had the I'm friends with so many people that have worked here at Warrior Dog Foundation, and you know we keep very close on social media, and just how happy I shit. I mean, how yeah. could you not be happy? You know? Yeah. No, I know it. It's uh, it's really. I mean, it's it's kind of a cliched thing. People say I'm honored or I'm blessed or or whatever. I mean, whatever the fuck you want to call it. I I uh, am very. I feel incredibly fortunate to to have been able to to be in a position. Uh, you know, to be involved with with Warrior Dog as as long as I have, it's it's an amazing uh, mission uh, and an amazing thing that uh, you know. Just to, again, to be able to to have a have a place for these dogs to go and and stories like yours, you know, are, are the fucking reason. It's the why, you know. So. Uh, anything you want to add as we uh, kind of wrap up here? No, man. Sorry we didn't get to crack a beer next time yeah. for sure. Yeah. No, next absolutely. time I'll have my uh, NASCAR face plastered on my own beer can yeah. and yeah, we'll fucking crack yeah. some beer. But we, we can, uh, uh, some of those damn ribs, bro. Yeah. This, I was like, <laughs> Mike's gonna have a barbecue going on. I'm gonna I'm gonna slide in the back door, get a podcast <laughs> in, eat some fucking ribs, and drink some beer. And then I'm like, then I scheduled my fucking flight too short, my you know too early, and I'm like. I fucked myself on this yeah. one, but well, I, I, I'll tell you this much: the uh, you, you're coming back soon here when in the RV with Nico. Give me a, at least a week heads up on that, and uh, and I'll, I'll make your ribs that'll go all the way back yeah, to Colorado yeah. and slap your yeah, mom. Yeah. So um, for sure, we uh, we'll, we'll get you hooked up next time. It, it's funny at this point, like for a number of guests now every fucking guest that comes on like where's the ribs dude i hope dude i, <laughs> yeah. and, I mean all your stuff yeah. your 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 meal plans are catching yeah. on the ribs are catching on this yeah. you know obviously this podcast is fucking amazing to listen to so well, i appreciate it um, very much yeah man I, I you're building a little empire here i'm excited to see where you go with it well, so. thank you very much I, I appreciate the hell out of you coming a, a quick shout out being memorial day obviously people will be listening to this after the fact but uh, we'll definitely be uh, throwing one back for uh, for the brethren that we have lost, and uh, we appreciate their sacrifice, uh, not just today, but every day. For those of you asking uh, about all the different products, uh, whether it's CBD oil, first aid kits, the collar leash, we've got the food and treats coming, as well as the crates soon, uh, but just go to teamdog.pet, uh, and that'll be the resource to, to get all of the products that we have available here at Trico's. Taylor, can't thank you enough for making the time to come on Dude, out. I appreciate Fucking it. Awesome story. I'm super proud of all the things yeah. you've done. Well, next uh, time I'll, I'll give it some more time, you know, yeah. for for bullshit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> amen. And uh, appreciate uh, you coming. Uh, proud of everything that you've done. And uh, as always, thank you guys for uh, tuning in each and every episode. Uh, without you guys, we would not have the show that we 100%. have or the ability to bring it to you. So thank you uh, as always. And. Of course, in keeping in tradition with this podcast. Until next time. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first hand witness accounts 
of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Series might drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.